I'm Chick, and you're listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast. Happy New Year, because 2010 is over. It's now 2010. Yay. Yeah, yay. Boo. No, yay, because we saw some awesome movies in 2010, and we are here to tell you what they were. We all have come up with our top ten. Oh, by the way, as I said, my name is Tom Chick. I'm here with Christian Mukowski, I think. Did I get that right, Christian? It's re you. Never mind. (laughs) And also Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, is there a tagline for 2010? Like the the whole year? I'd like to paraphrase my favorite filmmaker, George W. Bush, from his memoir in reference to 2010. In my instance, but not his. Uh, I have a sickening feeling every time I think about it. I still do. Did you say bad things about Kanye West also, Kelly Wand? Uh, I don't know him. Oh, no, did you? Black people. That's right, right. That's where I was going with that. I uh, hate that guy. So yeah. what, we've, what we've done, uh, we've all come up with a top ten list. We, we have ranked them from ten to one. Uh, we did this last year, and rather than each of us going over one slot of our list at a time, we've thrown them into a hopper and scored them according to how highly they ranked on each of our lists. <laughs> Tom did all the math, so that's right. There, so there was math behind this. Now, the math has nothing to do with any awards we're giving out or relative quality of the movies or whatever. It's just the order in which we're going to reveal them and talk about why we like them so much. So, basically... Mm-hmm. What you're getting is uh, presumably a ranking of the, the the podcast's least favorite. Actually, that's not right. Our least favorite of the favorite movies to our most favorite of the favorite movies. The worst, best movies of 2010 first. Exactly, right. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll uh, Dingus and Kelly Wand, you guys haven't seen each other's lists because I did all the maths, so this will be a surprise for you and, and the list, presumably. I'll say the movie. And I'll say how it ranked in each of our lists, and then we'll talk about why it was awesome or sucked. Uh, Shouldn't this just be our top 18? Well, that's that's another thing. One of our concerns was that, you know, this podcast actually, it's a terrible, terrible idea. idea. Yeah, because we all agree. We all have very similar tastes. We need, there's not a lot of time, it's rare that we get friction on this podcast, which, you know, that would make it more lively. Uh, So I was worried we were going to get, you know, 12 movies to talk about. But no, we've got 18. Uh, some, there are some movies that were only on one person's list. There was, of course, some overlap, as you can imagine. Uh, but let's get started. By the way, stick around, because we're still doing our 3x3. Three three. Plus, at the end, we've each chosen a most surprising and most disappointing movie of the year. So, All right, let's get, let's get started here. Here we go. Uh, this movie only appeared on one list. It was only on Dingus's list, and it was his number ten movie of the year, and that is Roman Polanski's Ghost Writer. Wait, wait, Dingus, is that is that right, or is it the Nicolas Cage thing where his head is a flaming skull? Um, I thought that was the same movie. <laughs> it's not. It's Roman Polanski's Nicolas Cage Ghost. My Sapphire. My Sapphire. <laughs> Based on something. Push. Now, now, Dingus, why did you pick Ghost Rider as your number 10? All right. Well, uh, you know, when I broke uh, broke these down, I broke them down in a number of ways. Um, uh, and I should start, you know, one of the things that, that Tom did was that he said, um, you guys should be prepared to tell everybody why this film is special. 
Um, and so I, I did that in a number, number of ways. Uh, you know, number one, uh, why just one statement of why this film is special to me was as I was watching it, uh, and I watched it, I think on, on DVD just a few months ago, um, I, I wrote the note as I was watching it uh, that I, I get the feeling I can't miss a frame. Uh, as I was watching this film, I, I just got the feeling that I, I can't miss something that's going on in this. And, and I'm just a real sucker for for films, for modern films that get this Hitchcock uh, vibe and also can get some of Chandler in there, too. And I, and I feel like this film gets that in a modern way. And I, I, I have to say, I feel a little bit crappy uh, about picking this because um, – well, because Roman Polanski is uh, such a douchebag, um, but <laughs> like a lot of great uh, filmmakers, we but, you know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I, I don't know uh, when I'm evaluating a piece of work. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the artist if he's a douche. Um, and so I just sort of put that in a different compartment because this film really, really worked for me. Um, uh, I just I thought it was great. Uh, there's there's a number of things I loved about it, uh, and for each of the each of the films I picked, uh, I, I've got a I've got a quote I really love from it. I've got one sort of miscellaneous thing that really worked for me, and usually some sort of image that I thought really stuck with me. And the, the image that really stu- sticks with me in this film is 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 Ewan McGregor's face after he he makes this amazing facial expression after he reads the manuscript the first time. It's just this great sort of ah! face that he makes. Uh, and he's got uh, a great, a great moment uh, in the in the bedroom. And it, you know, I don't. Know if, I, I think you already said this, Tom, but I, we can't go too far into spoilers on any of these things. So I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. But but the uh, the 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 uh, the bedroom scene in this film is it's just a fantastic moment. And uh, and my favorite quote from from this film is is well, all the words are there; they're just in the wrong order. <laughs> Kelly, uh, Kelly Wan, did you see Ghost Writer? No, I don't see movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I was, because Polanski's had a number, I say a number, I mean, of misfires, but I, uh, that Ninth Gate, what was the the thing with yeah. Jack Depp and the Devil Book or whatever, wasn't that, that wasn't his last movie, was it? What has he been doing lately besides that? That's a good movie, too, though. Oh, God, that's Kelly uh, Wan's crazy. What? But I, I just yeah, want to say, I thought, no, I didn't care for it at all. I, but I thought that Ghost Rider was just a return to fine form. I mean, it, it just, Polanski is a good filmmaker. Regardless of uh, his relationship with uh, younger women, uh, I think he makes good movies. Or he has made good movies, and Ghost Rider uh, reaffirmed that about him. So I'm with you there, Dingus. Yeah. He's got more to prove because of that. So in a way, never mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> all right. He has to prove he's good. Uh, is that your favorite Polanski movie since Rosemary's Baby? Uh, also, let me let me say one more thing. Um, I, I think that I think people I think you guys will remember how much I complained about the music uh, in The Tourist, and I, I saw The Tourist, and and I I think I saw this after that, and uh, this this film, the the Ghost Rider, totally schools that film on how to use score a score for for this kind of, for any kind of thriller. And the music is by uh, Alexander Desplat, who did uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And um, it's just perfectly mixed. It, it perfectly supports the film uh, without overwhelming it. 
All right, good. All right. So Ghost Rider, uh, after that comes a movie that only... Wait, was... wait, wait. I was going to say, he made The Pianist, too. So. Oh, of course, right. right. That counts. It does. Sorry. So I guess it's only that ninth gate thing that I hold against him. That and the also... incident with the child. Uh... He's in Rush Hour 3 as a detective, too. So is that the only film that's <laughs> only on one list? I forget what you said. No, 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 no. So now we have another film that is only on one list. This made uh, this was the number ten spot for me, uh, and that is the kids are all right, uh, which was a, a very pleasant surprise for me because the director Lisa Chulodenko. I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, her previous movie I loathed. It was called Laurel Canyon, uh, and I really disliked it immensely. So I. I had no intention of seeing Kids Are All Right, but I like Annette Bening, I like Julianne Moore, I adore Mia Wasikowska, uh, like Mark Ruffalo, so I thought, you know, I'll see it for the cast. And really, really ended up liking it a lot. Uh, one of my favorite things about The Kids Are All Right is how it shows the lifestyle of a lesbian couple, and it really makes a movie out of it about family values. It doesn't have this sort of uh, gays or libertine kind of or, or liberated agenda. Uh, they, they struggle with the same things that a normal family struggles with. That's raising their children. Uh, that, that's fidelity. You know, it's been criticized because in the course of the movie, one member of the gay couple has a relationship with a man instead of another woman. Um, but I, I, I think that, that that kind of misses the point, that, that, that this couple... You know, they love each other, they care about each other, and they deal with the same problems that other people deal with. Um, so I, I really liked that. I loved, I thought, both actresses in it. This was a fantastic year, by the way, for female, female performances. Uh, and Annette Bening and Julianne Moore uh, were, were right up there with, with some of these other great female performances. They, they looked great. They looked their age. They had so much chemistry. Uh, Lisa Cholodenko didn't feel the need to sort of lipstick them up or make them look glamorous. Um, so that, that was my number 10. Uh, Dingus, did you ever get around to seeing that? Oh yeah, I did. And I, I loved it too. Uh, they're just, yeah. So just ir irresistible, an irresistible couple. I thought one of my favorite movie couples this year was, was the two of them. Kelly Wand, I don't think you saw Kids Are All Right, did you? No, I don't see movies where the title's a complete sentence. I see. Uh, well, by the way, why didn't make why didn't make Dingus's list? Is my question, real quick. I'm so, guessing because there were ten movies he liked better. <laughs> is that correct? Really? Because I had to struggle to even find ten. And I, never mind. Uh, when I watched this, I had, I had specific things that didn't work for me that made it not a list film. But I don't want to uh, really bring up. I don't really want to criticize things about it because I I really liked it. I, I really loved them as a couple. Um, there, it had one of my favorite scenes of the year in it. One of my favorite, just one of those, those miscellaneous thingy moments that I, I really loved in it. And, and, uh, I just, I just like the way, uh, the two of them as a couple seem to really try to work through their, their problems and the way she, especially the way Julianne Moore addresses the family late in the film. Uh, I like, I like the, I like the way the, this, this film deals with families having to talk to each other. Yeah. And it's so nice seeing Mia Wasikowska given material. Like in Alice in Wonderland, she was just a fixture. Uh, there was another movie this year called That Evening Sun, where she was a caricature of like a southern precocious young girl. Uh, but here, she, she, she was great. She was, uh, you know, she was given stuff to do. Uh, 
And ultimately, too, I mean, the title, Kelly Wan made fun of it because it's a complete sentence, but the, the title really does sort of come through over the course of the movie uh, in that... Uh, well, does it mean the kids are all right, like, so-so, or the kids are awesome? Or is that a spoiler? Uh, maybe some of both. <laughs> I, I think it is a spoiler. I think you, I, I really think you have to watch the film to get a sense for the, to get a sense of the title. There's a, I think the title is very important, but I think it, it's rewarding to watch the film. The title is very important, and the song that plays over the end credits, it's, uh, uh, oh, what's that group? They're called MGMT, I think. Uh, there's a song called Youth that plays over the end credits, uh, that is so perfect, too, for, for what I think they're trying to get at. If the title was The Kids or Whatever, would that be a spoiler? <laughs> That's what the character wanted to do, yeah. Uh, Tom hates me. <laughs> well, you should see these good movies. Uh, has I should. It, I don't, I, has either, I, neither of you has seen I Love You, Philip Morris, have you? No. Unfortunately, no. I didn't get to go see. Okay, it. no, it's terrible. It's awful. And and one oh. thing too, like I I I <laughs> I masturbated the trailer. Does that count? I I think that that I like I'm I'm not gay. I don't know what offends gay people, but I look at a movie like The Kids Are All Right, and I think that must make. I mean that I I love the portrayal of homosexuality in that. Whereas in I Love You, Philip Morris, I can't help but think that that would be offensive. It's so stereotypical and flamboyant. And you've got two obviously straight actors just sort of femming it up. And I, it just it seems like it's so pandering. And there was none of that, in, in, I thought, in, in The Kids Are All Right. Um, it's handled very respectfully in Meet Dave when one of the aliens finds out he's gay and then, like, wears leather afterwards and talks with the gay accent. Did you see that movie? Is that the one uh, where... It's on my 2009 list. Eddie Murphy's A Spaceship. Huh. Okay, I'll have to check that out. <laughs> uh, we have several well, more. Oh, go ahead, Dingus. Sorry. Well, the thing is, in this, these, these are, these, these two women are a couple. I, I, I mean, yes, it, I guess it's supposed to be a splash because it's a lesbian couple raising two kids. But to me, it's just a couple working through their problems, as any couple does. And and you have you have the the uh, the difficulties that that ensue in this film in every relationship. And and it just so happens these are two women and and you you hear it when when the kids are talking about this mom or that mom right. and the way they talk about their moms is is beautiful I just love the way the kids relate to their moms One of, um, I I, just, I love that but but as far as couples are concerned they're just a couple I kind of disagree Dingus One of the things I wondered about watching this movie uh, is did the couple have to be a, a lesbian couple. You know, for instance, I think of the, my favorite movie from a couple of years ago is called The Station Agent. And uh, Thomas McCarthy cast in the lead of The Station Agent, Peter Dinklage, who's a, uh, I don't know the right midget. I mean, I don't know what the wrong the offensive term is, but I think he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a short person. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a midget. And you can watch The Station Agent and think, did it really need to have him in the role? He brings something to it by 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 having that aspect of his personality and who he is. But Thomas McCarthy didn't write it that way originally. Um, whereas in The Kids Are All Right, it's about adopted kids of a couple. And the question can be asked, does it really have to be a lesbian couple? And I think it does. I think it, it brings very important things to the movie that wouldn't be there if they were a straight couple. Um, do you disagree? Different dynamic. Well, a different dynamic, but also like plot points and 
the the way they react to certain things, uh, the way they have to explain certain things to their kids. And like you're saying, Dingus, even hearing the kids, the vocabulary of the kids talking about their different moms. Um, right. I just think it's such a crucial part of it, unlike Peter Dinklage being a midget and the station agent. I think the couple being a lesbian couple is so important to the the story as it's told and as it as it's put together. Um, I think you're right about that, but I still think that the the things that they're having to deal with as a couple absolutely well, yes. that are things that every couple has to deal with. Yes. Uh-huh. Such as why they watch straight porn instead of gay porn. They do? <laughs> oh, you just got Kelly one to watch the movie. Wait, what did they decide? Wait, so, wait, wait, wait. This is it about lesbians? Because I have questions. <laughs> you weren't listening. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Uh, it's well, not like... It's, that's the thing. is, It's not black swan lesbians. You know? It's not hot chicks uh, making out. It's a couple. It's like Dingus is saying. And and they're such a they're such an, a loving couple, you know, warts and all, and and they're they're getting older, and they're but they're uh, well, it reminded me of another couple I want to talk about in one of my other favorite movies, but I'll I'll save that. Uh, Is it one of the pornos they watch in this movie? Is that a hint? Well, no, there's just a small it's a small plot point where uh, they watch they watch straight porn instead of gay porn, and at one point <laughs> they have to explain that to their kids why that yeah. is, and it's a love well, straight. I can say as a straight guy, I like lesbian porn. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, we're, we're not going to go in that direction. Let's instead go to the next movie on the list. There, this is one of several, actually, that, that only made one list. Uh, Kelly Wan's number nine for the year, which... Oh, oh okay. Wait, I swapped these. Oh, no, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay. <laughs> My math might fall apart at some point, but... This no, no, you're right. Easy to calculate. Uh, Kelly Wan, your number nine was Shutter Island. Explain to yes. us what made it special. Uh, well, an anecdote will best illustrate my point, because um, I had to buy Inception, the other Leonardo DiCaprio unreliable narrator movie, on Blu-ray for this old man who dumped a cat at my house. So I go to Best Buy, and the chick at the cashier <laughs> register thing, when I buy it, goes, oh, I love this movie. And I go, why? And she goes, oh, because the special effects, like when Ellen Page folded the city. And I go... Yeah, it's too bad that was in her training session, and she never does anything cool like that during the mission, huh? And then she goes, yeah. And then I go, did you see Shutter Island? She goes, no. I go, didn't think so. Give me my change. And then we start making out. So Shutter Island. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought we weren't going to get a synopsis this time. <laughs> That's all I got. That's it. That's, it's a wretched week. Um, Shutter Island. Am I the only, really? No one else put Shutter Island on their list. I'm the only Shutter Island apologist. Uh, no, no. You and I, Kelly Wan, quite like Shutter Island. That was one of those rare podcasts where we had a little friction because Dingus wasn't as fond of it as you and I were. I and he loved Inception. He's the Inception apologist. Inception made no one's list this year. I guess that's not a spoiler. Ah, uh, Dingus pissed out. <laughs> but but yeah. Shutter Island was. Someone said to me of How to Train Your Dragon that it was this year's best Pixar movie. Uh, Shutter Island was this year's best Christopher Nolan movie. Yes. It's perfect Christopher Nolan. And the, and the writing's good. I mean, it, I, I, I get the sense that most people think Dennis Lehane is, a, is kind of a hack writer. And so it's kind of like, it's sort of a simplistic premise, I guess. But it's more just about the journeyman and the composition. There's so much going on in that movie. Like the, that whole discussion we had about whether the cup was real or not. Either way, it's cool. Like it's a mistake that makes the movie better. And I don't think it was a mistake. I think it's really there. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to believe that 
Scorsese would miss something like that, and everyone saw it who saw the movie. Um, That's and it's got the, the director of The Departed wouldn't miss something like that. <laughs> Ouch. Damn it. I hate oh. it when Dingus spins me so effortlessly. All right, it's off my list. Dingus wins. All right, well, also, it has my best written or my favorite written scene, too, that scene where they're in the Jeep and he's talking to the warden. That's the best scene, best written. Right? <laughs> that was such a great, creepy scene. I know. It's so creepily filmed. And his delivery, his line readings when he talks about biting his face off or something. That's good shit. Uh, Kelly White, that scene. another thing I loved about Shutter Island is that, uh, that Dingus hated the score. Because <laughs> I loved yeah. the music in Shutter Island. It was just so overbearing and outrageous. And, and I loved the fact that it, made, it set Dingus' teeth on edge. <laughs> It's a, it's like a, it's a Hitchcock period piece, man. I don't speaking understand why people. Don't. It's and also it was their biggest hit, so I'm not alone. Uh, speaking of Hitchcock pieces, Kelly Wan, the next one on the list was only uh, on your list. Your number eight was Buried. Why don't, why don't tell us why you like that? Oh, when did you, you see that, you jerk? Today. Oh, nice. It's good though. You guys didn't see it? No, I love Buried. Buried is fantastic. Didn't make your list, though. I you're, saw at least 10 other better than Buried. <laughs> All right, if it had been your top 20, would you put it there? Oh, this Bar- is so exciting. You, you guys both loved it. I'm so uh, excited about this. Buried would definitely, yeah, Buried would definitely I do take love it. My... Go ahead. No, no, that's all I was going to say. I wanted to hear you. No, no, I, I, it would definitely make my, uh, it would make my honorable mentions list, yes. Uh, I want to hear why you loved it. I'm so, this oh, is Kelly Wand, it's on your list. Why don't you explain what made Buried special? Now, now again, I want to stress, let's be real careful about spoilers. Ah, uh, it's so hard to be on this. I know. Because I, I really like the ending a lot, <laughs> and I don't want to give it away. Okay, let's just remember, we're talking to people who have not seen these movies. So, keeping that in mind, Kelly Wand, what, sell us on Buried. Buried is, I have a fetish for movies where people are stuck somewhere, which is why another movie's on my list, but that movie kind of broke the fourth wall a lot, went outside its bounds, but Buried's just Ryan Reynolds stuck in this little box, and mostly talking on the phone, and it's, he just gets these... Ah, everything's a spoiler, though. It's so just, right. it's so much better if you just go in nude. And, like exactly. anything I say that makes it good, it's just line by line. There is dialogue in it, and their plot developments, and every one of them was great when it came. And, and when he so, finally gets out of the box, though, I mean, it. Well, I don't want to. But say. you shut up. I don't. Okay, shut up. Uh, one thing though that uh, that I loved about Buried is. Yeah how it incorporated the the invasion of Iraq. I love the fact that we have a kind of a little thriller, a Hitchcockian what? self-contained thriller, and, and how much it's about contemporary the contemporary political yes. situation. The whole movie's an allegory. It really is. It really is, and it's it's a it's a Spanish director, if I'm not mistaken. He might be. Yeah, Rodrigo Cortez. Is he Mexican or Spanish? Writer. He's Spanish. Okay. And it's a Spanish movie that they shot in Barcelona. And the screenwriter's name is Chris Sparling, and I want to give credit to it because I and him because I like good. I'm, all my decisions are basically writer-based, so that's why <sighs> it's not on here. And I, th- I consider it part of, you know, there's so many fantastic Spanish directors, and this guy, you know, Buried is a movie where you see you see it, and you're like, I, you know, i got to keep in mind this guy's name. I, I want to see everything he's going to do from here on out. Yeah. yeah it's so brave. Uh, it's just so, it, voice acting. And Ryan Reynolds is, I mean, it just seems like I, I'm a, 
everything that's like a challenge for actors, I'm kind of a sucker for that stuff. Like if they had to actually cut their arm off or something. Uh, and he does a great he does a great Hitchcockian everyman. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of important in, in, that he does that role, and then he pulls it off fine. Yeah. So, all right, good. From Buried, we go to another movie that only made one person's list. Uh, my number seven this year was uh, Mike Lee's Another Year. Uh, Dingus, I know you saw it. Kelly Wan, did you see that? No. Another Year features a, a couple that also, in a way, just because there's so much chemistry between them and the movie does nothing to glam them up, features Jim Broadbent and a woman named Ruth Sheen as a, a married couple. Oh, she's amazing. Uh, she, they're both so amazing. I mean, Jim Broadbent, if, if he was American, I would, I would put him up for national treasure status. <laughs> uh, but, but what's really so, what I love about Another Year is how it's kind of subversive in that it's about this older married couple, but it, it introduces an absolutely... I mean, Mike Lee is so good with actors. You think of uh, David Thewlis in Naked or Brenda Blevin in Secrets and Lies, Sally Hawkins in Happy Go Lucky. There is a, there's a performance in Another Year that is every bit as devastating and electric as those other actors I just mentioned. And it's a woman named Leslie Manville. And the movie is ultimately about her relationship to this this older married couple and and their sort of peaceful domesticity and and her loneliness and how those interact. And it's just, it's it's something I've never really seen in a movie before. Uh, So Another Year was my seventh favorite movie this year. And... I might go so far. And again, just another example of just a fantastic female performance. Um, hmm. So, Dingus, you liked it as well, I presume. Uh, it knocked me out. Um, her, the the way, <sighs> sorry, the way he uh, lets a movie breathe, the way the the way he lets scenes breathe. It, when you're watching these scenes, you can see a moment where an American director or editor would cut it <laughs> and it would just, and, and in his films, they just go on for beats and beats. There's another few hugs. It, it, there's a scene at, it, near the end of this film with her and the brother. That is the, one of the most uncomfortable and amazing scenes I've ever seen where, where you sit there thinking, will they just come home already? And at the same time, you want it to go on. Uh, it's, it's her character, her performance she embodies the word furtive. She's so great. Uh, but but the, the central couple is just phenomenal. It's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, Michael Lee and, and good actors is just such a potent combination. Uh, in another year is definitely more of that. So. And one, one of the wonder, wonderful things is, is sitting there and watching these actors just talk to each other. Because you, you just get a sense of, of people talking and loving each other. It's just, uh, I, I was not, I loved that film. Do you remember, it's beautiful. Do you remember, Dingus, the, the dinner scene at the end of Secrets and Lies? I, I really don't. Okay. And, and I was really struck by the number of, of Neil scenes in this film and, and how, how well they work over the course of the film. Well, it definitely, there's this sense of, you know, one of the one of the kindest things you can do to someone is feed them, uh, and this movie definitely definitely touches on that. I mean, it, uh, uh, Jim Broadbent and Ruth Sheen are, are just so kindly and loving, and they're constantly feeding people, literally and figuratively. 
Uh, and, and it's also, you know, it matters that they're gardeners, you know, that they're nurturing and growing things. Uh, and the movie is that, uh, is, is really, you know, if, if somebody's not being, if somebody is constantly being fed with homegrown food, uh, in this movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm. And you, and you just love the way they, they communicate to each other with love. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's mm. also, you know, Dingus, you've talked before about movies about, uh, like, drug use movies. Your, your phrase for that, Dingus, is uh, junkies are tedious. <laughs> and it's really hard to watch a junkies are tedious movie. And as another year started, uh, Leslie Manville's character isn't a junkie, but she's definitely got issues. And as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be a, a movie about this tedious woman. And she is tedious, but the movie refuses to let you not care about her or write her off as tedious. Uh, it's really, an, it has this amazing capacity to to make you care about a really tedious, annoying character. Um who is the kind of person you you would want to leave your house as soon as humanly possible. Uh, you would be constantly edging her towards the door. And this movie really makes you care about her. Uh, and it's so amazing how it does that. Uh, there's a couple characters like this in the movie, actually. Uh, so, all right. Um, Go ahead. Uh, let, me, let me just ask you, uh, what do you think about Amelda Stanton in this? Oh, that's who that was. Oh, my God. Thank you. I meant to look that up. She's the, the woman who comes to Ruth Sheen early in the movie, right? The insomniac, yeah. Yes. I, wow. Wow. I thought, well, I, you know, when the movie first started, I thought, oh, it's going to be about her. And it's not. Right. Uh, but I think the idea is kind of like she's an older, more advanced version, maybe, of Leslie Manville. But I, I, I was riveted by her in this. And it, I didn't realize until you just now said that that was her. Yeah. It's just so odd and beautiful the way the the film starts we were you just seeing this uh, and the doctor i can't remember her name but she's so great you just see her hands you see her hands dealing with with Imelda Staunton and then and and it and it seems like Imelda Staunton's character is just there to sort of launch everybody into the relationships with each other yeah uh, and I, I kept wondering, when are we going to get back to her? But we don't. Uh, when are we going to run into her husband, who's a drinker? We, but we don't. It, she's just sort of an inciting incident, in a way. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned hands, because there's a couple of... I mean, Mike Lee knows how to, like, what to shoot, and, he, you know, I think he just does such a good job with, with knowing what to anticipate the actors are going to do, and I think they, they rehearse so well, even though a lot of it's improvised. So there's there's a couple of great shots of, like, hands and skin, and, and these aren't glamorous American Hollywood celebrities. They're very doughy British people. Uh, but there's a certain beauty to their skin and their hands and the way it's shot, and there's one scene where Jim Broadbent hugs his bereaved brother, <laughs> and it's almost like... It's not... It's not uh, I don't want to say it's like a kissing scene, but it's it, it, it's so much about the sort of the power of that physical contact, and, yeah. and the the men's hands. Like you can see the brother's hands in the shot, and the way he's not sure what to do with them. It's it's yeah. just yeah, it's beautiful handwork. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, so uh, that was my number seven for the year. This next movie was Kelly Wan's number seven. He was the only one who picked it. Kelly Wan, why are you the only one of us? to put 127 hours on your list. Because Dingus hates Danny Boyle, and you're a racist. <laughs> and James Franco. <laughs> so, uh, Kelly Wand, your seventh favorite movie was uh, 127 hours. Why did you like it so much? 
Um, well, it was another stuck somewhere movie. Mm-hmm. It's a. Oh, I just realized my favorite's a biopic. Now I'm pissed off. But anyway, uh, what's not to like about it? It's great. It's a guy stuck under a rock for 127 hours. Although, if it has a flaw, it's maybe that we don't really. There's no time at the end where it's like, okay, it's been 127 hours, the helicopter's here. Or does that count the helicopter ride? Does it count when he drank the water? Is that when he cut his arm off? (laughs) It should go off my list. Now it's not making any sense to me. All right. You've also kind of spoiled it, but that's okay. (laughs) What how? I guess everyone does. You know what? You're right. We even talked about that on the podcast. Everyone does kind of know what happens in that movie, don't don't they? It's a true story, so... So there are no spoilers. (laughs) Um... No, and James Franco, it's just one of, I like movies where there's some kind of limitation where the actor has to do something hard, right? and James Franco does that. Well, and it was so... It's a good year for Pretty Boys, good year for Ryan Reynolds and James Franco. <laughs> uh, what about Paul Walker? Was it a good year for him? It will be, in <laughs> Fast Furious 4 when he's stuck in the engine block for the whole movie. Paul Walker does, by the way, have a, uh, a great... Paul Walker has a great heist scene in, in an otherwise terrible movie called Takers, uh, which I don't recommend. Uh, <laughs> you don't know about Takers? Seen, no. I, I can't believe there's a Paul Walker movie I don't remember. It's an ensemble. Bad. No, it's an ensemble movie where Paul Walker's the token white boy. Uh, and uh, he has a great scene where they're heisting some, uh, some armored cars. Everything goes wrong. Paul Walker jumps to the rescue and uh, sort, sort of saves the day. So, but you, you're right. Uh, good, good year for for pretty boys stuck in uh, difficult positions, uh, th- and that's one of the things I really loved about 127 Hours. In that, Danny Boyle brought such a sort of a spirited presentation to a very static situation. Yeah, uh, you know, buried took advantage of its static situation, and it wanted you to sort of feel right. it, experience it. But Danny Boyle, uh, you know, refused to sort of do it that way. It started really spirited. Even when he got trapped, there were all these sort of mental flights of fancy. Uh, I know, Dingus, you took exception with some of the sort of stylized approaches that Danny Boyle took. Um, but I, It's also a different dynamic because the Franco character has survival as a possibility on the table. It's just like he has to get to the point where he can do this thing that will really suck. And if it's like that's his only option, well, as in buried, it's like everything he's doing, and he's on a shorter time frame, and he doesn't have to worry about the same concerns like water and food. Never mind. Well, the the part of again part of what's great about 127 Hours is that it's a it's a really smart, clever character in a tough situation doing smart mm-hmm. things. Uh, Which know. buried's not really buried's just a random dude, and but James Franco's like. A, like a survival trainer, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you get to see that in action. I mean, that's part of what makes it, you know, unlike a Hitchcock, every man dealing with a tough situation, this is a guy who knows what to do in this situation, and he's yeah. doing his utmost. It's still a tough situation. But and, he, and he got himself into it. I don't know, Buried, but 127 hours, he got himself into the situation. Now, why do you go blaming the victim, Dingus? Yeah, my the way, rock looks solid. I, I, yeah. That's my thing. And that stuff about, I don't know, it's, I like, this is weird because I'm the only atheist, I think, on this podcast, but I like movies with a sense of the mystical 
and I think Hunter 26 Hours is sort of a, like when he starts talking about how the rocks journey through space was leading all to this one moment. Like, this is the only action that the rocks had in millions of years. Like, it's, sailed around. Yeah, at least since faster. <laughs> well, and, and this rock will be reincarnated as a tree, I believe, according to, was that Mila Jovovich in Stone that was talking about? No, that was uh, Aronofsky in the fountain. Oh, please. And the tree will eat the Hugh Jackman. Right, Hugh next, Jackman goes in the water. His doll's eyes. Yes. Next movie also only on one person's list, uh, although at least two of us have seen it. Dingus, you chose as your number six movie of the year. Beautiful. Why don't you explain to us why you picked that? Uh, did any of you see it? Yes. Uh, did you like it? Yes, I did. Well, you know, not as much as you, I'm going to say. Uh, I had some problems with it. I love Inaritu, and I, boy, he he makes a city look alive like no one else. That guy, what an incredible sense of place. He gave, I assume it was Barcelona. Uh, but uh, I had some problems with the movie, but first I want you to sing its praises for us. Um, very simply, it's a story about a father that really speaks to me. Uh, in, in the end, uh, this list, uh, a lot of times these lists, uh, these movies wind up on my lists because of how much they move me. And um, there was a lot I didn't understand about this movie and things I did have problems with. But but it was so moving to me because of the story about a father having to figure out how to um, provide for his children when he's not going to be there anymore. And it speaks to so many of my fears and uh, my own joys about being a father. Uh, you know, how, how are you going to protect your kid? Uh, what are you, you going to, how are you going to do for your children in this world? How are you going to provide for him if, if everything goes to hell for you? What are you going to do? And, and this man's pain um, and, and how he may do in the world, and particularly in in the perform in a stunning performance by Javier Bardem, uh, just really spoke to me. And and I saw it, and then the next day, I had this sort of throbbing in my head, and and it felt like the the film sort of stuck with me, like you hear about a hangover affecting somebody. Uh, I, I I had a really hard time shaking it. Um, it, it sort of it, it sort of kept kept in my head like a hangover, and and um, uh, it, it you know from the from the moment when he's walking his kids to school, which is one of those little moments I just I love in a film. You just a, a guy walking his kids to school, and there's a couple things like that this year uh, that just speaks to me. And and the the image that that, that lingers for me is that that niche wall um, when, when there, there there's this. I, I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything, but but when you see it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. The niche wall, and um, so so the performance I'm talking about. The score is phenomenal, and the sound design is one of the best sound designs in uh, that uh, of of the entire year. It's it's a freaking amazing sound design. So there you go. I I loved there there are it, it reminded me a lot. This is one of my favorite things about it. By the time Beautiful was over, it put me in mind of the dream that Ed Tom has at the end of No Country for Old Men. Right. And this sense of continuity of the line between 
parents and their children and that person's children. Uh, there was some really cool stuff with that, that that emerges over the course of the movie. Um, my problem thing is, is I, I think Inarito, it's... It seems a lot of it seems self-indulgent. It's a two and a half hour movie, and it felt like it. And I just thought it could have hit just as hard in two hours. And there are certain things that I don't want to bring up that are kind of plot threads that I'm not clear on why they're in there or why they serve the material. And I'm not saying they don't. I just am not clear on how or whether they did. And I'm reminded of Babel, which Babel, whatever mm-hmm. how you pronounce that, which which had a which seemed like it was intentionally doing that, having all these plot threads, and it's up to you to figure out how to tie them together. But Beautiful was just about one man, and there were all these things. Like, I want to talk about this kind of uh, superpower he has, but I kind of don't because it's, it, it's a cool part of the movie is discovering that. And I'm not sure how that fits in there or if they did much with it. Uh so there were just some things like that that I thought were problematic. Uh, I, I can't wait to talk to you about this because I think that my feeling is almost the exact opposite. Okay. That, that the, um, the things I felt made Babel um, spread out made this film more focused for me, uh, made more sense to me. And, and the images of what you see, the, the scene he has with, with B... Uh, uh, his mentor uh, is one of my favorite scenes of the year. That first scene, uh, I was just knocked out by the by the way they talked to each other, um, and the bookends that you're kind of talking about when you talk about the Ed Tom thing. Uh, one of my favorite bookends in a film ever. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, and and the reveal when you get the reveal of that. As the film goes on, yeah, you know what? You're making me like the movie better. Stop it! It's, it's breathtaking. Yeah. <laughs> Why do they spell it like that? In the uh, it has to do with a, a child, a child not knowing how to spell. It's a it's a fairly mm. important part. Uh, mm. Wouldn't you agree, Dingus? Like, yeah, I think yep. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a spoiler that the kid can't spell. It's the child trying to write a word. And and mm-hmm. Javier Bardem says you 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 spell it like it sounds, <laughs> and so the child spells it like it sounds, and uh, you later find out how that looks. But also, one of the strange joys about this film is <laughs> is reading the subtitles and hearing the language, um, and wondering what am I missing and what am I getting. So one one of the weird things about this this movie is hearing. Uh, this wonderful wor- word, Papa, you know, when the kids say that to her, to that to uh, their father, uh, but the the subtitle reads it as Dad. Oh, <laughs> when you read the word Dad, it just reads different than hearing kids say Papa, and it, I don't know what to do with that, but I loved being able to have both of those things happening for me. Papa's like a Pinocchio term, isn't it? Isn't it like fairy tales? It just seems like a different term of endearment, and I liked having both. Knowing, knowing as a father, having a, a kid who says daddy and dad and feeling the different things of those, and knowing that there are different feelings to those words, hearing the, these kids say papa, and, and, but, hear, but, but reading the word dad, it was so weird, uh, and, and it made me wonder, what am I missing about the title? Maybe you're missing your kids calling you Papa, and you want that. 
Maybe. Dingus goes by Daddy Dingus, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, I will say also, Beautiful has, as far as uh, the, the logistics of, of shooting a family scene with children, uh, Inaritu just gets it. I mean, there are just su- such great scenes with kids, as far as the kids being comfortable, them doing natural things. Uh, you know, there are a couple other movies this year that, that did it well, but but I think Beautiful is is one of the best movies as far as capturing that 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 parent-child dynamic with little bitty kids who aren't normally actors. Absolutely right. That, and that boy was great. And the uh, and the uh, woman who plays Marambra, um, she's not as far as IMDb is concerned, she's never been in anything, and she's freaking amazing. And and you could have seen them, you know, shoveling in uh, Penelope Cruz or something, yeah, yeah. and and they put her in, and she's oh, she's amazing. And when you first see her, too, you're like, oh, okay, so there's... I mean, you, you have a very certain perception of her, the first couple scenes she's in, and as they right. reveal details about her character, you, you really start to appreciate this performance you're watching. Uh, she's, I, I quite liked her and she looks so distinctive too. Again, like all those, those great British actors in another year, she's not someone you would see in Hollywood playing that role. Uh, right. And I love that. Yeah. Uh, why don't we spell words the way they sound? Cause we're English. There you go. Blimey. You're too easy. The next movie only appeared on one person's list, although we all liked it. <laughs> Kelly Wan's number five movie of 2010 was Black Swan. Kelly Wan, wow. what, what made wow. this so what, what, what put this so high on your list? This was in the top five for you, Kelly Wan. Yeah, it was going to be in my top three, but then I saw a bunch of stuff this week, like Buried. Although, wait, Buried's under that. <laughs> Disregard everything I'm saying. <laughs> you guys didn't put Black Swan on? You guys suck. That's what I have to say about Black Swan. <laughs> What's that like? I, I maybe it's part of it is like I'm kind of a retard when it comes to ballet and opera and the finer things in life. So, hello, <laughs> we're listening. We oh, haven't cut your right here, we haven't cut your mic. <laughs> oh, not when I said ballet. Um, so that stuff's exotic to me. It's like um, it's, it's like. It's like a foreign film, but you don't have to read the subtitles. It's like the, you know, it's another movie where an actor went through physical hell for the part. So I like that. Um, I like the ending. I like the beginning. I like the middle. <laughs> Why didn't it, I, I, I'm really the only black swan apologist. That's sad. No, Kelly, Wan, I, we, I think, no, we liked it. It's just there were ten other movies that we liked at least a little better. Yeah. I guess I didn't see enough movies this year. That's what it should say under Black Swan, under my blurb. Well, for me, Black Swan, and we mentioned this a bit on the podcast, reminded me a bit of Shutter Island in that it was a, a really accomplished director doing kind of a genre film. Uh, and Shutter Island was a Hitchcockian mystery thriller kind of thing. And Black Swan, I thought, was Darren Aronofsky doing this psychological horror movie. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess there weren't any horror movies. You know, that's that's odd. So that's a weird thing. I love horror movies. And good golly, I watch horror. enough of them. But they, they don't, none of them made my top ten. Like, I don't tend to, if it's a genre movie, I, I think I tend to, for whatever reason, not, it doesn't quite jostle its way into the top ten. I don't know. Horror and comedy are the two hardest things to write, too. So, and so to have two horror movies instead of drama movies, 
on my list. <laughs> it's proof positive that it was a stellar year for psychological horror. I would argue, Kelly Wan, and we'll get there when it comes your turn to talk about it, but I would argue that your number one is a comedy. Then don't say anything. Don't don't tip your hand yet. But uh, all right. So yeah, no, that's true. Okay, I think that's true. Now let's get into territory where this is the first movie where there's some uh, overlap. This movie appeared on all three of our lists. Kelly Wan put it in the wrong place though. Kelly Wan, your number ten movie for the year was Greenberg, whereas Dingus and I both put it at number eight. Oh. So Sly maneuvering. Kelly Wan, why didn't you like Greenberg as much as Dingus and I? Uh, I don't know. I'm sur- I, I, well, because I, I, I don't know what this list... I mean, you're putting... <laughs> we're adding num- numerical values to movies. I don't... I'm not good with math. It's an eight. But you <laughs> won't let me do ties. Um, <laughs> I would have... Uh, okay, let me swap it with 127 hours. Don't what swap it. it. Stay strong. <laughs> One of the things- I thought, you know what I like about Greenberg? You know what I thought when I saw it? Finally, a movie with a sympathetic main character. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone I can relate to. Finally, someone who speaks for me. That's why it's good. <laughs> Greenberg had a couple of great things going for it, one of which was it was like Noah Baumbach's screed to Los Angeles. <laughs> he, really, <laughs> he really seemed to have very strong feelings about the city. But also, I love the fact... And you saw a little bit of this, and you actually saw a lot of this in Margot at the wedding. I love the fact that it was it was tempered by the presence of of a woman. Like it, it was, uh, he collaborated with Jennifer Jason Leigh to write the script, and I thought Greta Gerwig's character just was such a crucial ingredient to watching a movie about this misanthropic, neurotic, unlikable asshole. Uh, what? I, I just thought it was great. It was great tactically to also make the movie, and I would argue primarily make the movie about Greta Gerwig. Uh, right. Again, one of the one of the, the great female performances of the year. Uh, she was just such a revelation in that movie. Uh, he gets her naked two minutes into the first date. I don't understand how that makes him unsympathetic. We can learn much from this man. <laughs> study him. I think it's give us a quote from Greenberg. Um, there are people in the pool. <laughs> uh, Diggis, what is your, uh, you said you had an image from each of the movies on your list, as sort of an iconic image for that movie. What was your image from Greenberg? Uh, my image from this is, uh, you know, Flor- uh, Florence, her name's Florence, right? Credit Glo- uh, Gerwig's character. Uh, after her, or she has this one night stand, and it's just the image of her hand wanting to touch the guy's back but not doing it. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm. uh, when he said life is wasted on people, that's so true, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my One of my favorite moments, though, is, is when Reeser Fons comes to talk to him about um, that he should have gotten to know his son. I just, I just love, uh, I love Reese Irfans in this, and I love that scene, the, the, how he handles it, how he's, he's kind of coming to him with his tail between his legs about going back to his family, and and and, and that thing about you should have gotten to know Vic, and uh, I just loved that moment. Uh, I have a question for you, Dingus, because you're a father. 
It is okay. So if all your friends have a baby in the same year, do you still have to know all the names of all of them, like within the first year? Like, and one of them had twins. It's it's, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot to know. Just take notes, Kelly Wand. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. Use, <sighs> use flashcards. Mm-hmm. Also, like they know the names of all my cats, right? I mean, isn't it the same thing? It's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. Okay, good. Now, Kelly Wand, you were the only one I think to have seen this next movie. Uh, you're number two, and I kind of don't want you to say anything about it, because I haven't seen it, and I know Dingus hasn't seen it. I thought you recommended this one to me. Not based on having seen it. I just like the director. So your number two, Kelly Wand, is Enter the Void, Gosper Noe's movie. Uh, Whoa, what? Why is this your number two? And I'm going to stop listening while you talk, so tell me when you're stopped talking about the movie, and then I'm going to listen again. Has you, have you stopped listening yet? <laughs> <I'm teasing. laughs> All right, so what made, without ruining anything for Dingus and I and our, our, our super sensitive spoiler sen- uh, sensibilities, uh, what made Enter the Void your number two? Uh, well, part of that mystical thing I was talking about earlier, and this is like the most mystical movie I've seen since maybe 2001, about the meaning of life. I know you guys think 2001's retarded, but that's just because you guys are retarded. Um... But Into the Void is, okay, where I said before, like, any movie that's writerly or an actor gets punished really hard, those things impress me. The other thing is when it's something I've never seen before. And Into the Void has, like, tons of photography. See, everything's a spoiler. Just see the movie and then can we do a podcast about it? (laughs) This is really hard to talk about without ruining. It's such a great movie to watch. It's a tortuous viewing. It's a movie that's punishment for you. It that, punishes the audience. That sounds very much in keeping with uh, Gaspar Noe's movies. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, uh... Ah, God. It's too good. Go see All right. it. All right. It was so, almost my number one, but then I went, eh, no. Well, instead, why don't you tell us what your number one is, because we've all seen it. You were the only one to put it on your list, and not only were you the only one to put it on your list, you put it in the number one position. Kelly Wand, what was your favorite movie of 2010? The King's Speech. You didn't like it? I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I loved it, too. Really good choice. Uh, That movie, by the way, is rated R, even though uh, True Grit was rated PG-13. It's rated R because rating systems are designed by stupid people for stupid people. <laughs> it's rated R because of all the sex in it and the and also the smoking. <laughs> and, right, and the stammering, because that'll make kids restless and fidgety. Kelly, why don't you explain to us what made it your number one? Wow, I'm so impressed that this is your number one. I can't wait to hear this. Well, because it's really, it's nothing at all like Zapped, which is what's confusing to me. Right. It's yeah. a little similar because the guy gets superpowers and he has like a friend who's always getting him into trouble. So it's a, very similar to Zapped. And it's about a guy using the power of his mind to make <laughs> women's clothes come off. Although it was just to get them into nurses' uniforms for World War II and not to look at their boobs. Yes? What? Uh, also, it's another uh, actorly virtuoso tour de force uh, thing by uh, Colin Firth. Like, I really believed in that, guys. And you're rooting for... Because I don't give a shit about the monarchy, so to make me care about a member of the royal family is quite an achievement. But, like, this guy had to... I mean, he became king at the worst possible time. He had a speech impediment. He has to, like, rally them for World War II. And he doesn't... uh, I don't know. It's kind of stirring. 
It's it, heroic it, in its way. I, it took me a little bit of time to warm up to. I mean, I think Colin Firth really had to earn that because the very first scene where it shows him in 1925 speaking at uh, Wembley or wherever it was, and he can't really speak. I, I'm watching it going, good Lord, you're the Duke of York. Who cares if you have a stutter? I, I have no sympathy for you. Move on, movie. Huh. <laughs> I mean, but but then you meet his dad. Not to, it's, that wasn't the moment for me, Kelly Wand. It was the moment where he's telling a story to his children, where yeah. I, I warmed up to him. And I was like, oh, okay, this isn't just a, print, a Duke of York. This is a guy yeah. who loves his children, and this is an obstacle. I mean, this is, a, this is something he has to deal with. And at that point, it really won me over. Uh, but he doesn't try on, to get out of doing that either. He does it. He does tell them the story. And it's like a good story. He's a good father. Yeah. Early on, I'm sorry, what? Uh, yeah, early on, I just had no sympathy for him. Uh, but you know, the, the the movie does a good job of earning that. I also really, it, it reminded me in way, well, it's a stage play, so naturally, uh, it, I, it reminded me of a stage play in that so much of it is, is about just two dudes talking to each other and the differences between them and them coming to some sort of an understanding. Uh, and, and I, you know, people will talk about Colin Firth's performance because it's amazing, but good Lord, this is the kind of stuff that Jeffrey Rush is just born to do. <laughs> that guy is so awesome in that kind of part. as just this, this slightly downtrodden, but, but earnest and really eager to help, uh, really intelligent, well-meaning, sometimes down-on-his-luck guy. I mean, it really does feel like he's playing ping-pong with one hand behind his back. You know? Yeah. Uh, he's so good at that. Yeah. My uncle was a speech pathologist. I'm always, I'm really fascinated in like the science of that and like how you, you, and there wasn't enough of that in the movie for my taste probably. Like there wasn't a, like we get a montage of him rolling around on carpets and stuff, but like what he learned and how he got better and how all the tricks he was using would have been even more interesting than than what we got. But as it is, the movie's about nothing else really. It doesn't go into much detail about that, about his brother and the woman, Marion, uh, no, it, What's your name, Wallace? Yes, yes, Wallace. Well, I'm I'm interested to hear what you guys think about that casting choice. Guy Pierce? Yeah, I thought he was great. What, what do you mean? What you didn't like him? Uh, I thought he was great, but I can't believe he's the older brother of Colin Firth. Why? Uh, you know, some people age; they they just look it. You can uh, just you say know, that maybe he looked older because his, his impediment made him age prematurely, so he's younger. <laughs> I can justify it because he's a naval officer and he took more responsibility on the other guy's a playboy. But when when you first meet Guy Pierce, I, I had this huge moment of confusion of who is this? Uh, because he does not look like the older brother of Colin Firth. Oh, you mean as far as a casting choice? As far not like how old he looks, but how they look phys- physiognomically. Their their faces. Right. I mean, I say right, right, right. right. Did they have different mothers? <laughs> can, can the monarchy do that? Uh, <laughs> was Jeffrey Rush Australian enough for you? That's the thing I loved too. Is that when he's auditioning? I mean, it's like other people knew he was Australian. We didn't necessarily. It's like they were so snooty in England that they could detect traces of the colonies. You know, when he's auditioning and someone says, yes, we wanted someone a little less colonial. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, sick burn for, uh, yeah. you know, 1930s England. <laughs> yeah. uh, I am also a huge, huge sucker for, uh, I guess this isn't a spoiler, 
uh, the Beethoven piece that they use in the, the climactic moment. And it, I've, even in crappy movies, so there's a horrible Nicolas Cage movie called Knowing, where the world ends to that Beethoven piece. And I love the end of Knowing because of that. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. That's enough to make you love that ending? Well, end of the world, big special effects extravaganzas about the end of the world are kind of inherently cool anyway. So if you said it... like some marketing guy just fed your name into a computer and it pumped out the word Beethoven, and that's the only reason it's on there. Are you Do they use about... Hamlet in Knowing, too? A little bit. <laughs> Uh, so good. Okay, King Speech, Kelly Wan's number one. Yeah, uh, rated R. I've, I'm I'm happy that somebody put this on because this was a real contender for. I, I had a couple that that were contending for that Ghostwriters slot, and what I loved about um, King Speech is is the way it made celebrity or the royalty. It, it, it showed it as as how humiliating that is. Yeah. You know, like he's he, left-handed, and because his father, he oh, that scene, right-handed. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah. yeah. Well, when he's Sorry. pacing outside of the, uh, I think it's called the Ascension Council. It, there's just such a sense of, of 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 how humiliating it is to be him. Having to wear all that stuff, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also how insecure they are. You know, when, yeah. when he breaks down in front of his wife, and Helena Bonham Carter, who sometimes can get on my nerves, but is fantastic in this movie, uh, when he breaks down and says, I'm a naval officer, I'm not a king, I'm a naval officer, and he, and he starts crying, and it's a, different, it's, it's a different quality of crying than his brother does in front of the whole family, you just get a sense of his insecurity and, and how humiliating it is to be a king. And I and I don't see that in a lot of other movies, and that's what I loved about this. Yeah, it's about how wretched being a king is. Right. And, and that he hates it. And that's why it's so poignant when when Jeffrey Rush says you're the you're the bravest person I know, or whatever that line is. It's it's such a poignant moment. It right. seems like he's he ascends to power for all the right reasons too, which is something that seems to have gone out of fashion here in America. But. I mean, I have a question, though. Was the monarchy like that? Like, they, did they even have any power by World War II? Or was it just purely figurehead stuff? No, and he even says at one point he's got a speech about, you know, I can't levy taxes, I can't declare war, I can't pass Right, wars. right. Uh, I don't understand that whole British thing. It's, I don't either. Like, when did that happen again? <laughs> I'm a dumbass. Very quaint of them. Uh, All right, so okay, King's so. Speech, Kelly Wan's number one. Now, Kelly Wan, you left this next one off your list, but I know you liked it. It was Dingus's number nine. It was my number three movie of the year because I liked Killer. In- I liked Killer Inside Me way more than you guys, so that was my number three. Uh, and to explain why it's my number three, I hate to do this, but I'm going to steal a line that Dingus used on our podcast. I felt Killer Inside Me did for noir what Unforgiven did for westerns. Uh, and I would love to, to say I came up with that line, but Dingus, I think that was your description, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah, and I want to. I, I really want you to talk about this before I do. Well, I thought so. Here we have a noir movie. It's uh, it, it's it's Michael Winterbottom, who's an absolute chameleon of a filmmaker. It's a John Curran script, uh, who knows how to write the pathology of sexuality into a script. Um, and and John Curran's also a director. It's Casey Affleck 
who I used to loathe and now have so much respect for. Uh, it's that great combination of a director, a performance, and a script all coming together. Uh, let me back. Oh, sorry. Hold on a second. Hold on. In reverse. Let's pick up the rest of the list. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that that was my uh, number three. Uh, for the year. Uh, I loved how it brought to film noir a sense of being shocking. Uh, you know, film noir, these, these old black and white mysteries are so often quaint. Um, and this it was just a, a, a sickeningly brutal movie at, at times. Uh, and I'm also attached, I'm increasingly attached to my interpretation about the Indian, which we won't get into here. Uh, but I, I, I think you won me over. You made a good case for it. Good. But I, I think it's a it's a it's a provocative, densely packed, detailed movie, uh, and great performances, fantastic script, and it's just Michael Winterbottom just showing how good a director he can be. Hmm. All right, Dingus, why why was it only your number nine, Dingus? Uh, just because I liked Greenberg a little bit more. <laughs> So, uh, as a as a way of revealing, because I watched it again, and, and I, I kind of came to an understanding of where I got that unforgiven idea, uh-huh. and it, and it's this quote: "Nobody has it coming. That's why nobody can see it coming." Is that from Unforgiven? <laughs> no, it's from The Killer Inside Me, and um, it's in the scene with, uh, and I forget his name. It's 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 in the scene where he goes into the jail cell with the with the guy, Johnny Pappas. Yeah, thank you. And 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 Johnny says, you know, I, you know, they must have had it coming. That's that kind of thing. And it occurs to me that there's almost those same lines, but slightly different in Unforgiven. They they had it coming, and I think. Clint Eastwood's response is nobody has a comment. So it, it's just interesting that those two things are there, and I didn't see it for a couple of viewings. Um, no, Eastwood's uh, was, uh, Deservin's got nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, well, I thought there was something like about they had it coming. Um, I, I love the image of Amy or Kate Hudson reaching for her purse. That's one of my favorite images in this film. You gave us a line. Oh, and you gave us a line from the movie, right? Um, and also, uh, and, uh, one of my favorite moments is the way he's he's saying "I love you" uh, when he's uh, beating Joyce. But uh, but we don't want to talk about anything else. But uh, it I just it, you know films that scratch my noir itch I, I just love them and, and this one really really does it. Like Kelly Wand, have I won you over with my uh, interpretation of the ending? I'm really resistant to it because right. I wanted to I want that to be real. All right, what all right. Spoiler. The whole thing to be real. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay, let's go to the next movie. True Grit was on all of our lists in varying positions. Dingus, you put it at number seven. Kelly, you put it at number six. I dropped it way down to number nine. I loved it. Uh, racist. Uh, we all love True Grit this year. Kelly Wan, why don't you tell us what made True Grit special? Why, why is it one of the year's best movies? Uh, well, I consider it the year's sixth best movie, according to this online piece of paper in front of me. But uh, <laughs> it's based on... One of the best books I read this year, uh, and it's got a young girl in it who's good. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's such what. a faithful translate. Now, I, I'm the guy on the podcast who traditionally says, I don't care if something is true to source material. However, when, when source material is really good, there's nothing wrong with being true to source material. And one of my favorite things about True Grit is how much it really does feel like Charles Portis's novel. 
Uh, it really gets, you know, the Coen brothers understand the dialogue, they understand the, the sort of the, the pacing, the sensibility of Maddie Ross and, and of Rooster Cogburn. Uh, I, I just feel like it's so informed by its source material in such, such a rich, rewarding way. That, that's one of the, that's probably one of the things I most loved about it. Dingus, give us a line from True Grit. Actually, give us a couple, even. There, you know what? Just recite the script for us, Dingus. Go. <laughs> we have no rodeo clans in Yale County. <laughs> this is like women talking. <laughs> Deserving does got something to do with it. Isn't that what Maddie Ross tells the horse trader? <laughs> Uh, well, you'll have to clamber up and look. <laughs> and also, uh, boy, it was a, it was a nice palate cleanser after seeing Jeff Bridges sleepwalk through Tron. <laughs> no See, maybe that was that was their trick. Maybe if we'd seen True Grit first, we wouldn't have liked it as much. Ah, right. But um, did Portis see it? He's supposed to be a reclusive dude. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they were able to roll him out for press junkets. So. I don't know. Huh. Uh, all right. Did uh, Kim Darby see it? She's still around. What's she doing these days? She was in the one and only. Did you see that movie? Henry Winkler is the wrestler. No, isn't that the one where Henry Winkler has the ventriloquist dummy? <laughs> That's Mel Gibson. And it's a beaver. <laughs> uh, okay, the next movie, Kelly Wine. I don't think you've seen this. Uh, you should. Uh, Dingus and I. Very closely uh, rated Blue Valentine. It was my number five movie. It was Dingus's number four. Dingus, uh, why don't you? Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to go why first. Why don't you? God, this ahead, movie Tom. was so. You go first. This movie was so uh, just just raw and emotionally naked. Um, it's a it's a movie about a marriage. Uh, it's directed by a, a fellow named uh, Derek Cianfrance, who has done a lot of shorts and, and stuff and some documentaries. I don't think he's done any other feature-length films, so I didn't know who he was. Uh, but he so lets Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams drive this movie. Um, just just what, what an incredible chemistry they have together. I mean, we've seen a lot of movies this year where the actors either seem to hate each other, like The Tourist, or maybe they were just having fun with each other, like Night and Day. But there seems to be so much going on between Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling in this movie, for, for better and for worse. Uh, and it's such a painfully honest movie in terms of where relationships can go wrong and how there's not necessarily a bad guy. They're just victims. Um, and it, it's, uh, so yeah, I, I, I got out. It was such an incredible surprise. It was such a revelation seeing, seeing this movie. I, I love this one. I think it's give me a line from Blue Valentine. I, I have to sing goofy in order to sing. I mean, I mean, I have to sing stupid. <laughs> Another great instance of an actor with a, a, a musical instrument. We, we had, uh, done one of those as a three by three and I kept thinking of that scene. Ryan, uh, Gosling with a ukulele, and and also great kid work. Uh, you, you know they they have a, a daughter in this movie, and uh, there's just such great work uh, with the two of them with this little girl playing the daughter. Um, I think it's what's an iconic image from Blue Valentine. Uh, for me, it's just the the picture of him comforting her through the blinds and the window outside the doctor's office. Because uh, I started to fall apart a little bit during that moment, uh, and it reminds me a little bit of something that happens in Greenberg. Um, <laughs> Minus the hamburger. <laughs> right. 
Um, I I was just freaking knocked out by this movie. Uh, and the and the way these guys, the way these two, Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling, establish a relationship and re- establish um, two different parts of a relationship is amazing. It, it the, the way they do it, and it there's no sense of artificiality anywhere in this movie, and uh, you you just you have to see it because if if somebody told me this this is this movie this is what it's about. I would not want to go see it. I don't want to see a movie about this. But watching this movie, I was just taken with it. And uh, I, I think it's it's phenomenal. Some of the best uh, couple acting I've ever seen. Uh, and in a film that's rich with that. I mean, you brought up a, another year earlier, which is another, which is just freaking great couple acting. But, but, Showing this relationship, and this film touches me on so many levels. Uh, it just totally gets the way um, your choices resonate over the years of your life, and 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 how uh, your promises have. Uh, I don't want. I don't want. You just have to see it. You have to see the way these people work, and and you're 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 saying that about the kid is is spot on. I mean. Uh, I'll give you Ryan a Gosling is is free. He's just an amazing actor, and Michelle Williams too. I I can't get over it. I'll give you a line now, Dick. It's ready. We're eating like leopards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's there's, there's a couple of uh, contrasts too, which that you know that reminded me of of moment in Beautiful too actually. The boogers thing? No, the the eating the the mango ice cream with your hands. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. The constantly, you're just stopping disgusting. <laughs> right. Stop being gross. Right, right. Um, so I, one of the things I like to do when I'm talking about a movie is talk about other movies that tried to do something similar and failed. Uh, <laughs> so Blue Valentine, I, I, so Blue Valentine was executive produced by both Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. And I don't know this for a fact, but I'm, I'm guessing they, they saw the script. They're like, yes, we really want this to get made. We'll be the executive producers. We'll be in it. This is a great opportunity for us as actors, so let, let's do this. A similar thing happened with a movie that I think is really bad called Rabbit Hole, which is similar in, in subject matter about a married couple and what they're dealing with. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, Rabbit Hole, actually, I don't think this is a spoiler, but Rabbit Hole is about a married couple dealing with the death of a child. Um, so it's the ups and it's sort of the downside of a marriage, the difficulties of, of a marriage to people who love each other, going through changes. Um, and Rabbit Hole was executive produced by Nicole Kidman, who I presume saw the script and thought, yeah, this will be a great opportunity for me to, to perform. But Rabbit Hole was just so glib in comparison to Blue Valentine. And, and although Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman, who play the married couple in that, are both very good actors, there's just nothing there that's even remotely as, as raw or honest as, as Blue Valentine. Uh, so Rabbit Hole is kind of like the anti-Blue Valentine. Um, and also, Dingus, you say Ryan Gosling is an amazing actor, and he is, but you watch something like, I think it's called All Good Things, with him and Kirsten Dunst, uh, which plays more like a thriller, but it's also uh, about a marriage. I don't think he, like, he's he, he's, al- he's almost forgettable. I would say he's forgettable in that. Um, so, yeah, he's a great actor, but, uh, y- you know, I had just seen him in all, all Good Things and was just like, oh, yeah, Ryan Gosling, whatever. So this really reminded me, yeah, this guy... Is, is is amazing. Uh, well, I think they're both just fearless, and that is so helpful when you're when you're 
acting when you're trying to create these kind of relationships. You know, fearless is a good word to use, like, and especially for Michelle Williams. I mean, I can't help but feel, you know, when I see her in stuff like this and Wendy and Lucy, I just, she, I'm like, I, I, I hurt for her. I mean, she is just so open and fearless and, and willing to sort of expose herself. And she's not a flashy actress. You know, there's nothing like, like stunt performances. Or she's not doing accents. I mean, there's no Meryl Streep craft here. It just seems like this, this really amazingly open young woman just putting it all out there. Uh, and you know, maybe she's got us tricked. I mean, who knows? She might, she's pro- is she Australian? I'll bet she's Australian, and she's tricking us. Racist. <laughs> she's Paul Walker's older sister. Uh, but there are real consequences for her taking the, these kind of roles. This and Winnie and Lucy. I mean, it, it will it will and has affected her career. But it's clear that that she's she's doing things that that she believes that she should be doing as an artist. And I. I couldn't be more appreciative of that yeah. watching this movie i was just i watched it this morning and it sort of wrecked me for the rest of the day what time did you go another uh, year Eleven fifty. okay i was there two showings after you <laughs> uh all right the next one also this kelly Wand, have you seen blue valentine no i saw that part though with the ukulele Kind of made me want to make out with Michelle Williams. Where'd you like see that things. part? They showed it at uh, King's Speech. Oh, oh the, like in the trailer. They butter me up, yeah. <laughs> okay. If you know uh, what I mean. She, she does a great little dance during that scene. She does. She's cute. She's a cutie pie. The next one... Is I'm she just... cutie pie in the movie, or is she a pure evil? <laughs> no, no, not at all. There's no... It's it's not a movie with, with an agenda. There's, there's no... It's not passing any judgment on its characters, even though if I were... Here's the thing. If I were to describe to you things that the characters do to each other in this movie, it's like Dingus saying if you were to describe the movie, you'd think, I don't want to see that. I could tell you things that the characters do in this movie, and you think, oh, yeah, that's the bad guy. And But the movie doesn't pass judgment on them, which is part of the beauty of it. Mm. it yeah, and, you know, I was I was driving somewhere with my family today, and just talking to my wife about how much I loved this movie and but how sad and, and how difficult it was for me to deal with it. And my six year old in the back seat said, Well what are the sad things that happen? Oh yeah, you can't tell him that stuff. <laughs> and so I'm trying to tap dance around that. Well, you know, it's it's two people and, and they're they're not getting along. Well what are they doing? <laughs> and what's the problem? <laughs> I love you but fuck <laughs> The romantic comedy. I can't really tell you. Are, are they trying? And his next question was, "Are they trying to kill each other?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, he should be a screenwriter. He knows that. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, Kelly, one you also did not have on your list this next movie. This was my number two movie of the year. Dingus, it was your number five. Uh, I loved Forty Four Inch Chest because I didn't know that was this year. That yeah. was last year. No, that was this year. Uh, it was simultaneously. Tender and brutal, uh, poetic and profane. I mean, it, it was, uh, as, as far as the, the language of this movie, uh, it was so expertly written. And, and, and what a fantastic cast of dudes, too. I mean, they, these are some of England's best as far as doing this sort of brutally profane dialogue. Uh, and it's ultimately, 44-inch chest is kind of like a latter-day Othello to me in that it's a movie about a man undone by sexual jealousy. Uh, but in this movie, it's about, you know, what, what do his friends do with him? Uh, 
And uh, so this is this was one of my favorites of the year. My number two was a 44-inch chest. Dingus, is there a line from 44-inch chest that you could give us that you can say in public? Sure. All right. What do you got? Love's hard work, hard graft. Love can be murder. Love is watching what she wants to watch on the telly. Now do it as someone other than Colin Farrell. <laughs> Racist. <laughs> It didn't make my list because I thought it was about a girl with a 44 inch chest. Oh. <laughs> also, Richard E. Grant's not in it. What's that bullshit all about? Although, Joanne Whaley's kind of our Richard Grant. Uh, okay, it's on my list. It's my new number four. <laughs> uh, Diggis, what's your iconic image from 44 inch chest? Uh, it uh, has to be his face at the beginning. It's her lick in the window. I- just, just that Rick, that Rick, the face of, you know, his face as you, what is it? I can't live. You're hearing. And it, it, when it opens, if you don't know what 44 inch chest is about, which I was fortunate enough that was the case for me. When it opens, it, it's like you're looking at a corpse. You're like, oh, this is a, this is a murder victim or something. Mm-hmm. Is someone dead? Right. Uh, <laughs> and he is inside. In uh, it's the opposite of the Animal Kingdom opening. Spoiler alert. I'm, I'm so crazy about Ray Woodson's performance in this. I mean, he's. We talked about this because we we did a, a podcast about this, but he just has so much range in this. Uh, I just didn't know. I, I didn't know he could do all that, and I and I've loved him for some time, but he just does so much in this film. Where he goes, it's just, it's a phenomenal performance, and and, and the the squ- the the squishy thing I, I would have to say about this as I was considering my list is is when I when I go over my notes for this I just get such a <laughs> I just get this incredible incredible fuzzy feeling when I'm reading all the dialogue <laughs> because their voices are so distinctive you, you can hear uh, you can hear peanut you can hear John Hurt saying those words as you if you just wrote if you just wrote the quotes you can hear him saying those things and you, and you can hear Ian McShane Saying those mm-hmm. things, and his entrance is just freaking great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, w- one of the things they said when we, when we watched it was how much I love this. This the idea of, of of seeing it in like a black box theater, and how powerful, how it, how it maintains that immediacy and power. It's it's just such a powerful film. I like uh, however they cast everyone sort of against type too. Like Ray Winstone is vulnerable, and John Hurt's like. A raging maniac, and Ian <laughs> McShane is gay, and it's all convincing. All three of those performances. All right, should have been on my list. I'm obviously a total racist. Okay, the one you also did not have on your list, uh, Fish Tank. That was Dingus. I thought that was. Oh, oh wait, that has to go. Dingus is number two. It was my number four uh, of the year. Uh, I thought Dingus... it was last year. It's uh, 2009. Nope, opened this year. Uh, Dingus, give us a line from Fish Tank. <sighs> Say hello to the world for me. Who says that? When is that? That's at the end of the film. Oh, spoiler. Okay. Dingus, what made Fish Tank special? Uh, you know, I, I guess I could just say Katie Jarvis and leave it at that. Uh, she's. You, we've, we've talked a lot about this year. We've talked a lot about the young female performances. And, and often when we talk about this, we we leave. Off, I, I was leaving off Greta Gerwig, but um, always thinking about Katie Jarvis. It's I just get choked up thinking about her in this film. Uh, to say nothing of that little sister as well. Uh, it's just 
it's it's special to me because so many of the films this year for me dealt with family dynamics and and Katie Jarvis's performance uh, just made the year for me. It's one of my favorite performances ever. Uh, All right, take off Shutter Island and replace with Fish Tank. <laughs> well, it's you know the, little, the thing is, that, you know, easily. Kelly. To be to be fair to you, it's it's difficult to suss some of these things out. But when we were doing this particular podcast, I think I made a point of saying to Tom and you, let's just decide right now: is this a 2010 film? And we all agreed on that. I, when, I, for doing the podcast. Well, it had its theatrical release in the UK last year, but it, it was released in the US, and that's where we live uh, this year. So yeah, it was technically a, a 2010 release. Um, well, that's definitely in my top three or two. So okay, Kelly, why did you we like to do Fish a whole Tank? new podcast? Why do you like Fish Tank so much, Kelly? I love I love the fact that it's all from her point of view for the whole movie. No matter what's going on, the camera's always on her, and it's unpredictable in a way that no movie ever is anymore. And it's, uh, I just believed in all these characters. It's about human beings. The way Crash isn't about human beings. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of Fish Tank. Uh, uh, what, was the, what number was it for you? Uh, Fish Tank was my number four this year. Okay. Uh, yeah, There were only three. Uh, uh, what, what other movie this year besides Fish Tank had a horse as a metaphor for a young girl's innocence? Secretariat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, exactly. Um, yeah, and uh, I just love. I, what is it about England, for Pete's sake? Oh, good lord! Yeah. Well, part of it is this little thing that you see before a lot of these films that were on my list that I started to notice is that these films get support from their governments, and we don't right. do that. No. So <laughs> filmmakers can take a lot more risks and mm-hmm. and create a lot more interesting things because they, they're not just relying on commercial success. And there's something to be said for uh, the public supporting the arts. I think it's, why are you a socialist? Yeah, um, that's not cool. Well, because I, I, love, I love Mussolini, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's such a good point, Diggis. I, I, so it's not just that Britain has great actors. That's part of it. But uh, it really is like uh, a matter of having a mechanism to support the arts that, that also extends to cinema. You know, Hollywood is such a commercial endeavor and it's so big and noisy so often. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at my list now thinking, I don't, I don't mean to hate America, but it kind of looks like I do. Right. Well, it hates us. It doesn't let us make <laughs> movies like fish tank. Does it? Which costs and, two cents. Well, you say that Kelly Wan, but wait till what the highest ranked one, which I'm sure we can all imagine is coming. You know, the, the highest ranked, movie for our, our podcast, which we'll get to in a, in a minute, is, is quintessentially American. Uh, and it's it's a classic example of the American indie that does every now and then bubble up like that. But yeah, like it's, an accident. Much, it's much... Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's much more common to get this kind of thing from Australia and England. And, uh, one of the things I meant to look up is, after after watching Blue Velvet, one of the last things you see... I'm sorry, Blue Velvet. Blue Valentine. One of the last things you see is that it was a winner of something called the Chrysler Film yes. Project. yes. And I and I didn't look that up, so I, I'm wondering where the funding came from that. But, but yeah, our government, government won't support it, but Chrysler will, which right. actually is bailed out by our government. So indirectly, maybe. <laughs> Fish Tank is one of those movies where a lot of story is told through the way people are looking and just moving, even though the dialogue's awesome. That's something else that's great about it. 
Yeah, Kelly Wand, you dance like a black. <sighs> That's a compliment. That's true. That's a compliment. <laughs> uh, all right, so we all uh, love, love Fish Tank. Another movie we all love. This is from uh, Australia. N- another uh, UK I- or uh, common. Or is that part of the UK? No, it's not. It is now. It's part of the whatever the empire. I thought we were. <laughs> they were the colonies. We... Uh, mm-hmm. This next movie from one of the other colonies. We all love Animal Kingdom. Uh, it's number six for me, but both Dingus and Kelly put it as number three. Uh, mm. Kelly, why don't you tell us what made Animal Kingdom special? Oh, it's so good. That's the noir movie. Forget that, whatchamacallit. Killer Inside Me? Uh, Animal Kingdom's so good. So many... Uh, it's one of those movies where I'm finding a new fascination with quiet characters, like your Billy Bob Thornton and uh, the man who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. They just find they make great noir protagonists, and the guy in Animal Kingdom is like this big, like tabula rasa guy. He's so character. passive throughout most of yeah. the movie, isn't he? Yeah. But that's such an it's it, that that's part of what makes the the uh, the climax of the movie interesting. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, and it makes the title you see the title in a new light if you go back and think about what happens in the movie and the, the choices this character's made at every point become. Revealed. Dingus is the line you would uh, you would use from Animal Kingdom. Dingus does that is it the one I'm thinking of? What's the line from Animal Kingdom? Well, what do you think? These things never see me. I think I'm invisible. That's it. I'm invisible. These things never see me. Very good. (laughs) No one's invisible. That's one of my favorite miscellaneous moments. The the uh, the teaching about washing hands. (laughs) What's the line that precedes that, Dingus? Can you say that on a podcast? I'm not going to. <laughs> now, Dingus, do the line in the correct accent, if you would. <laughs> no. If you want to hear the accent, you'll have to listen to the podcast, because I believe we start the podcast with the accent. Oh, that's right. We're all Australian. Uh, <laughs> mm. all, right. all right, so we're big fans of Animal Kingdom. Also, again, when I think of, I mean, just a stellar year for female performances, good Lord, Jackie Weaver in, yep. in Animal uh-huh. Kingdom. God, ugh. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's the weird. I, is it me? Is it this year that was just full of amazing? And before we get to talking about Jennifer Lawrence, but isn't this year just full of amazing female performances? Is it just me? Is that true? No, and they never. It's usually it's so hard to find any good roles for women. It's so weird that this was the year. It's not you because I was I was at some sort of get together and somebody, some woman I was talking to about movies was complaining about there not being any anything that could be nominated this year and i had to restrain myself from you know grabbing her and, and getting a chalkboard and writing all of the names down because <laughs> why did you so restrain many, yourself uh, because i didn't want to get in trouble and get thrown out of the party i mean i had to and plus unfortunately the a lot of the names of movies i talked about are things that she's never seen and won't see um, so this is a fantastic year for uh, female performances, but it's it's not just you. It, it, is, it is, I think it is standout year. I think that the Academy Award needs to forget this whole deal of having ten Best Picture nominees, and instead this year have ten Best Actress nominees. Mm-hmm. That's that's. Yeah. Or just combine it with actor, and then it's it's guys and girls all in one lump, and then the girls will just annihilate. I think the chicks would annihilate the dudes this year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's unfair, isn't it? That it's not like that. This Hollywood is, yeah, movie making is so slanted towards women now. That's not fair. They're discriminating boo. against us dudes. Yeah, boo. Great <laughs> sexist. 
<laughs> so, all right, Jackie Weaver, fantastic in Animal Kingdom. But now let's talk to the, yeah. about the movie. That, oh, sorry, Kelly Wand, go ahead. It's just another great thing about Animal Kingdom is like the scenes. It doesn't show you at all, and like the like the court stuff. Except for the fact that uh, yeah, it, I got very confused. I'm trying not to. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it, but Animal Kingdom, like like some of the other movies we've talked about, I mean, it doesn't, it it it, it reveals its hand very carefully. Like what you see and what you don't see is important, and there's it's important that yeah. there are some things you don't see and some things you don't know. I mean, that's it that's, finds new ways to show you stuff you you think you've seen a million times, and it finds like innovative ways to convey that information. As far as yeah, being a crime drama, which you could sort of say it is, but that doesn't even begin to let you know what you're in for. Uh, yeah. Animal Kingdom does some really special things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why um, I guess we haven't really slagged on a lot of films during this podcast, but but that's why the town, uh, why I hated the town oh, so God. much when I eventually <laughs> saw it. Because ha- having seen Animal Kingdom and how, and uh, these films aren't necessarily related, but but seeing how this can be handled properly and how it can be handled in a ridiculous way. The, the town totally didn't work for me. Um, and part of what was bothering me was, was thinking about how well Animal Kingdom handled it. The opening credit sequence for Animal Kingdom is one of my favorite opening credit sequences of mm-hmm. the last few years. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so what's the uh, what's left? Gosh, I guess that summed up all of our uh, favorite. All right. Good uh, night. Okay, great. Right. Listen. Cue the Britney Spears. So Dingus and I had the same uh, pick for our number one movie. So Dingus, I picked it before you did. I just want you to know you copied off me. Kelly Wan put it at number four. Uh, but by by far the uh, the favorite of the quarter to three movie podcast for 2010 was Winter's Bone. Dingus, why don't you give us a line from Winter's Bone? I'd be lost without the weight of the two of you on my back. Ain't you got no men that could do that for you? I tell you one, give us a line from Winter's Bone. Fish Tanks 2009? <laughs> That's not <laughs> <laughs> That screws up the whole point system. <sighs> Poor Katie Jarvis. I'm still interested. Uh, Winter's Bone. Uh, chainsawing. Hey, wait, wait, let's be careful with spoilers. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's not a spoiler. She could be cutting wood. So, so go ahead, Kelly Wand. What uh, what did you like about Winter's Bone? Why is it your number four movie of the year? Well, we saw this the week before Animal Kingdom, so not only were we getting we saw all these awesome movies about crime drama with hotties in them. Well, I guess Jackie Weaver's not really a hottie. Let me start all over. This isn't coming out well. Jennifer Lawrence, uh, a sense of place. That's what this movie had for me. A fantastic sense of place and the people in it, too. I mean, I we talked a little bit about Beautiful, and I think Inaritu really brought to life. Well, I was going to say, he did a great job with the people there, too. But uh, Winter's Bone is so much about the Ozarks and the kinds of people who live there, and it treats them with such dignity, whereas it could have been a movie about dumb hicks. It is a movie about dumb hicks, but it doesn't look down on them. I mean, it gives them their own sense of nobility. and uh, it, There's obviously... The scene where they're... Go ahead. Where they're walking and there's like a gunshot off in the distance and no one reacts to it because they're just used to it because that's part of life in the Ozarks. Uh, Dingus, what would be your iconic image from Winter's Bone? Uh, my, the, just the image, just sort of a mental picture, is that 
that silhouette of the women walking on the ridge with the chainsaw, the flashlight, the burlap, the, the three, the, the four of them walking on that ridge. Uh, my my favorite moment in this film, and probably my favorite, maybe my favorite moment of the year, just talking about just little encapsulated moments, is the men's reaction to the sound of teardrops truck pulling up. Uh, I just love the way the men react. So what, while I was thinking about, like, okay, what movie is going to muscle its way to the number one slot for me, I generally make a list of all the movies I like and sort of let the ones that I think about the most and that, that plant sort of the strongest images and memories in my head, they sort of work their way up to the top. And one of the things that really moved Winter's Bone up to the top for me was it, it was about Jennifer Lawrence's characters, about a daughter looking for her, her father, basically. Um, and one of the cool things that Kelly Wan said about it when we did our podcast was that it doesn't sexualize her. I mean, so many movies about women that age are about their sexual coming of age. You know, that's what Fish Tank is. Um, but that this this movie wasn't about that. This was a, a mystery being solved by a girl who had more important things to deal with than boys and whether or not she liked boys. Uh, so that was one of the things I really appreciated about it. But also I appreciated how important a male character was without being the lead character. Teardrop, who's her uncle, is such a pivotal character in this movie. And he there's so many important scenes with him, but he doesn't he doesn't like necessarily. You know, he doesn't in any way get in the way of her central part in this story. Uh, and in a way, he doesn't even want to be involved in that. And the way that he gets wrapped up in it eventually, the way he gets pulled into it, uh, was was such a great part of who he was and what his character was. When you first meet him, uh, you know, he's he, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh and I, I loved how it gradually involved this, this really compelling male character uh, without him just being another hero. My iconic moment's when he goes, is it our time? Isn't that his line? Boy, that, that yeah, great, great scene with Garrett Dillahunt. Yes, absolutely. Some great Garrett Dillahunt work as well. We're all fans of his. Yeah. The guy from Tron? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was your number one. It was close. It, it was a tough choice. I, I finally just flipped a coin. Uh, but Winter's Bone 2, it's a movie that I kept turning over in my head, certain scenes, you know, how how people talk to each other, when you know what you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I just discovered that there's a director's commentary on the on the DVD, which I uh, listened to, but I can't wait to hear Deborah Granick talk about it. I've read interviews with her, uh, but I can't wait to hear her do a director's commentary on, uh, while watching the movie. I'm the only one of us who's sad that now Jennifer Lawrence is going to play superheroes and stuff and make tons of money and not make cool movies like Winter's Bone ever again. You know, you say that, Kelly Wand, but who knows? She'll probably still want to do... I mean, she does her crappy X-Men movie and then she can write her ticket to do whatever she wants. And maybe she'll be like a Michelle Williams and she'll want to do these cool indie actor-driven projects. Michelle Williams didn't make a a lame X-Men movie. Didn't she play Catwoman? (laughs) (laughs) Why must we hide our emotions? <laughs> All right, so there you go. Uh, Winter's Bone was uh, the the winner of the uh, quarter three movie podcast awards for for 2010. Mm, fish tank got jacked. I apologize. That's okay. No, we we got it up there without your help, Kelly Wand. Uh, yeah, that's true. Even without me, it was in the top two, huh? That's right. That's how little my vote matters. Good well, top three, top three for uh, the ranking. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter the overall ranking, but. Uh, <sighs> 
feel like a dumbass. Kelly Wand. Okay, let's do our most surprising and most disappointing movies of the year real quickly before we go on to our 3x3. Three three. Kelly Wand, what was your most surprising movie of 2010? Well, Red sucked a lot more than I expected. Um, but Animal Kingdom was my biggest surprise because it was just... Uh, it just... It stayed with me the longest of any movie I think I saw this year. And uh, it just... It just, uh, it did things I didn't realize were possible. Okay, so your most surprising was Animal Kingdom. Dingus, what would you pick as the most surprising movie of 2010? Uh, surprising first. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give hell for this. Um, I was floored by a little movie called Tangled. Yeah. That's for girls, Kelly Wan. That's for tween girls. Uh, Kelly Wan, your name's Dingus. That's for, uh, you guys that's for tween girls, Dingus. <laughs> it is it is for girls, and I thought that's why it surprised me so much. It's narrowly edged out uh, How to Train Your Dragon, uh, because uh, I was expecting, because of recommendations, uh, the dragon movie to be good. But I dragged my feet going to Tangled as, as sort of a play date kind of a thing. I, you know, I took my kid to see it with a bunch of his friends and their moms, and I was expecting just to sit there rolling my eyes and tapping my foot. And it turns out that Tangled is really, really good. Um, it it totally charmed me. It's uh, and it's also got I don't know. It's got one of the best animated performances I've seen in a really long time. The the guy um, who plays the male lead, Zach, I think his name is Zach Levy. The character's name is uh, Flynn Rider. Um, and it could be this real generic uh, hero, but the characters animated so well, it's it's uh, amazing. And then and then Donna Murphy plays uh, the the uh, antagonist in it. And one of the things that's great about this is it's not one of those animated films where they're constantly throwing out celebrities in this sort of derby of celebrity voices. Uh, it's really, really good actors that you don't know, and they're doing a fantastic job in a in a film that's utterly charming. Good. Okay. Um, I guess I'll see it. Kelly Wand, will you go see Tangled with me tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing it on a date. <laughs> you tomorrow. Uh, my most surprising movie. This movie actually this year had several movies that should have been worse than they were. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised by things like Piranha 3D, Night and Day, Unstoppable, A-Team, Faster, uh, movies that I was like, oh, this is going to be terrible, I'll see it, usually for the podcast. Uh, and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Uh, the one that really surprised me, though, you know, I was going to say How to Train Your Dragon, but Dingus, I'm going to let you have the cartoon movie <laughs> for, for this category. Ha-ha. <laughs> Instead, what I'm going to go for is Resident Evil Afterlife. Oh, my God. Here you go. Yeah, hold on. What You're surprised, an idiot. Hold on. I am an idiot. No, but what, no offense. But what surprised me was that I was so over 3D by the time I saw that, that to see 3D done well. Now, it was done well on How to Train Your Dragon, too, uh, but, you know, that kind of has an unfair advantage. It's a big, fancy, lovely cartoon, and they hired Roger Deakins. But I was so impressed with the 3D in that goofy Resident Evil Afterlife movie that I would say that that was the big surprise of the year for me. Because I was prepared to just 
I, I actually accidentally saw it in 3D. I was going to go to my rinky-dink local theater. They charged me $15 for the ticket and handed me some 3D glasses, and I almost objected, but went it anyway, and, and was just so taken aback by how well Paul Anderson made 3D work in, uh, in that movie. So that was my surprise for the year. One of my favorite reveals of our podcast was how we were all adamantly against that, and we all ended up seeing it in 3D. <laughs> All right, most disappointing movie of the year. Uh, Dingus, why don't you start us off? What was your most disappointing movie of 2010? Actually, you know, I'm worried you're gonna, you might steal mine. But go ahead. Um, it was it was close. I'm going to get in trouble for this because I've already gotten in trouble for this. Uh, it's Toy Story 3. Um, I loved... <laughs> I, uh, let me reiterate, as we did during the podcast, I love the movie, but ultimately it... it I. I was disappointed by it. It was the first. It was the first theater film I took my my five year old to, and he he liked it a lot. Um, but I saw it before that. I saw it twice in a theater in the same week. Uh, I went to see it in 3D first, and then I took him to see it. You know, I had to screen it first. Um, and the the opening scene, no matter how many people try to use how many different. Um, justifications for that opening scene nobody no matter whose idea whose imagination that opening scene is supposed to be uh i think it's cheap and the film just ended up disappointing me as much as i loved it and i did love it uh i found it disappointing yeah i'm with you on that one dingus kelly wander actually i'm gonna go next uh my most disappointing was almost i almost picked inception but, you know, Inception was about what I, I expected, and I, mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan can be hit or miss, and he's done a lot of hits lately, and so he's allowed to miss. But the one that really disappointed me this year, that I really didn't like, and I so didn't expect that I wasn't going to like it, was Stone. Because I love John Curran. You know, the guy who directed Stone has done some of my favorite movies and he has so much insight into, as I said earlier on the podcast, the pathology of sexuality. And he's done stuff about religion and, uh, and relationships. And Stone is just so ponderous and clunky and amateurish all around, from the performances to the script that he's using. And I just hated that. And I love John Curran. And I don't know what eh. went on there. Uh, but Stone you didn't was... like Nilla uh, in that? You didn't like Francis Conroy's old... Thing. No. Uh, yeah, some of that was fine, but my my biggest disappointment of the year in terms of uh, falling short of expectations I, was Stone, just because of how good the director is. There, there's nothing Kelly Wan that comes close to the absolute sogginess of Robert De Niro's performance in any of John Curran's other movies. How did he let that happen? I don't know. Uh, what was De Niro's last good movie? Got nothing to do with De Niro. I'm thinking more of John Curran. Like he's so. Zervin's got nothing to do with it. Especially because because we had just seen The Killer Inside Me the week before, hadn't we? Mm. And it was and we were looking forward to another John Curran. Yep. Yep. So. All right, Kelly. Was John Curran? It well, it was the he wrote he did the adaptation of Killer Inside Me. Yeah, and he directed uh, Stone. He's the director of a, a fantastic movie called Praise, which in ways Blue Valentine reminded me of. Uh, a movie called We Don't Live Here Anymore, and an adaptation of a uh, not Thomas Hardy, who, who's Painted Veil, Somerset Mom, of a Somerset Mom novel uh, called The Painted Veil. Uh, and then he turns up with this stone thing about a prison parole dude and a 
and Ed Norton and Cornrows. So there I you thought go. it was pronounced Malgham. Kalyan, <laughs> <laughs> what is it's... your most disappointing movie of 2010? Uh, I guess Tron. Or Iron Man 2. Iron Man, because I liked Iron Man. Am I the only Iron Man 1 apologist on the podcast? I consider that yeah. a good movie. <laughs> really? I liked it. And it was just like him noodling around in his garage for most of the movie. But it was seemed more about an actual dude. And then in Iron Man 2, it was like every other stupid-ass superhero movie, like Green Hornet, in two weeks probably will be. And it's just like random shit happening. Which I do like in my dramas, but not in my superhero movies. Yes? He, wants, yes. he just wants his bird. Why did they fight at the fireplace, and then he's drunk, and he's not drunk? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot if Mickey Rourke was even in that movie. <laughs> That's right. It's dumb. All right, Iron Man 2, very good. Well, you guys know what time it is. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one that time <laughs> feels a little weird doing a three by three after uh yeah another really list does. we just did a numeric list now let's follow it up with another list break things up for the listener <laughs> my number three and the number ten uh different math though um Oh, oh, good lord! It I was mean, a great year. I yeah. just, I, I thought it was a very, very good year. Uh, the only thing I like about this podcast, besides you guys, of course, is uh, getting to see all these um, good movies because I would normally put them off and procrastinate and never see and them. I wouldn't have seen Animal Kingdom if it hadn't been for you guys. So, well, we've given right. you some other things you got to see, Kelly Wand. You got to go to see uh, Blue Valentine now. So there you go, mm-hmm. Kelly Wand. What is she- is- Weeks and the answer to what you were going to ask is, oh, yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> sure can make it. All right, all right. What is this week's so, 3 by 3 Kelly One, What do you got for us? By the way, it's not all blue, is it? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, this week's 3 by 3 Why did you say that in the... Never mind. I would have watched it tonight. Or parts of it. Uh, this week's 3 by 3 is the three best... I don't think I set this up very well which is part of my shtick. <laughs> There's the three best sporting events. So we'll see what Tom defines as a sporting event. He'll probably pick Scrabble or something. And it has to be from a movie. In Not movie history. history. Movie, movie history. history. Of this universe to date. It can't be something that's still in production. It has to exist. It has to be a sport. There have to be rules to the sport. There have to be clear-cut winners and losers and teams, cheerleaders... Um. All right. So, Dingus, Schwarmers, Dingus, you're, you're doing our three by three next week. So, Dingus, why don't you start us off? What is your number three? Oh, and by the way, Kelly Wan, take notes because you're going to be putting the post up about this in the uh, movies thread. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Dingus, uh, you have to write down everything I say and everything Tom <laughs> says so that you can adequately synopsize them in one line. And then make a post about it. Right. Why did we start doing this? <laughs> Ownership. I mean, yay! Can't wait. Take us start us off. What is your uh, What is your number three? All right, my number three. Here's a quote. Kelly, you don't go so fast. Notes? I'm writing. Yeah, yeah. I'm typing here. Go talk real slow. None All right, here it goes. Here's my quote. Strike first. Strike hard. No mercy, sir. Okay, that's Crimson a lie. Tide. Not a Crimson Tide. 
strike hard. Uh, that's from Beyond the Green Door? I don't know. I don't think we've seen anything. It's some sports movie. Oh, you know what? I think I know what it is. What is it, Tom? It's a sports movie you've seen that Kelly Wand and I didn't bother to see called The Fighter. No. Oh, okay. Actually, you don't strike when you're boxing, do you? I don't know. what. I, I don't know. I give up. What is it? Uh, it's when Bowling. Daniel, Daniel okay. LaRusso is fighting the Cobra Kai. Wait, when what? Daniel LaRusso is fighting the Cobra Kai? I don't know. Sounds... Cobra Kai. Cobra. Danny LaRusso is fighting the Cobra Guy. I don't even uh, know what that is. From Dreamscape, I assume. Cobra Guy. No, if I, this is my post. You're going to get Kelly Wan's interpretations. That's fine with me. It's Cobra Kai. It's Daniel LaRusso. It's the Karate Kid. Stop it, you idiots. Oh, oh. I didn't know that. I honestly did not know that, that those were their names. That's yeah. a weird name to give Jaden Smith's character. It is weird, isn't it? Uh, it's the 1984 John Avildsen film, uh, Karate Kid, and it's the final uh, sports competition. Uh, I couldn't avoid it. I just love that, you know, that... Do the quote again, because I wasn't listening. Strike, strike first, first, strike hard. Strike hard, no mercy, sir. Yeah, it's the code no of Kai. Mercy, and, uh, and, of course, Daniel LaRusso is going up against Johnny Lawrence, who is William mm. Zabka, as we all know. And uh, and saying this as a kid, it just made wow. me happy. You know, seeing sure. that that weird, you know, I'm standing. I only remember him doing the crane kick, and that's the only thing that happens in the whole contest. Like he breaks his leg, some bullshit thing, and then he jumps on the leg that's not broken, and then that's the end. Isn't that that's the... right? Crane kick, sweep the leg. And in the second one, it just does close-ups of his face during the last fight, and you don't even know what the hell's going on. Well, I didn't pick the second one. I picked the first one because that's the best sporting competition ever. So Dingus is karate. I guess it's a karate match. It's not. So it is. Okay. That, that makes sense. I was going to say, is karate a sport? But I guess it is if you're doing it like a. Uh, it's a discipline. Head to head. It's karate a sport. It's Come a sport boy. competition. And, it, and and you can save your. your um, you're trying to uh, check whether or not this is really a sport for my number one. So just, just right. keep your powder dry. Well, because I know... I, Rollerball's a sport, don't worry. Uh, I know what sports are, so I, I, I very carefully no, made sure everything I picked was a definite sport. I, didn't, I thought about just trying to cheese out of this and do something, because I don't, I don't know any sports. So I'm not a sports guy. I couldn't... D&D's not someone, a sport, Tom. So well, you well when, Kelly, when Kelly said gun duels, that opened it wide open. Yeah, Kelly, I, I didn't take any of that at face value, but I, someone... Well. It, on a New Year's Eve party, someone tried to engage me in a conversation about football, and you guys would have loved it. I tried a little bit to stay in there and eventually had to confess that I didn't know what was going on. Uh, so I, I was going to cheese around this and find loopholes, but instead what I did is I picked three instances of movies that depict sporting events that reflect my utter indifference and uninterest in all things sports. <laughs> And they're all sporting events from movies. So my number three, actually it's a movie I, I mentioned earlier. It's a movie called Praise, directed by John Curran, an Australian movie. And the protagonist, his name is Gordon, uh, at one point he has to go home and leave his girlfriend to go to a family reunion. And one of the things he says happens at this family reunion, and it shows him with all of his, his big, loving, vast family of cousins and brothers and sisters and parents, is they have a cricket match. 
So, and he's talking about dreading this cricket match. So he goes home to the reunion and it shows him with the family. And then there's one shot. It's, a, it's, this is in Australia and it's during Christmas for the Christmas gathering. Uh, and, and the, the, the on-screen depiction of the cricket match is a single shot of him out in the field somewhere. You can see trees behind him. You don't see anything else going on. And he's just sitting there with a Santa hat on sitting in the grass with a beer, and a ball rolls up towards him, and he reaches out to grab it and throws it back. <laughs> and that's the cricket match. <laughs> and he couldn't care less about it. Uh, There's a ball in cricket? I guess so. Uh, so that's my number three, is the cricket match in praise. Uh, Guy throws ball back. Tom, you know you inspired this topic, right? Why did I inspire it? Yeah. <laughs> we just talking? Why did I inspire it? Because <laughs> the week before Kelly mentioned it, I yeah. think I was talking about poems or something, and you said, or best sports moments in history. <laughs> and then the next week, Kelly said, this is for Tom, best sports moment oh. in history, using your exact inflection. So, it was Well, I know Tom of- hates sports, so I really wanted to like... Yeah. So I've been hoisted by my own petard. Yeah. Okay. Kelly, what's your number three? My number three is, uh, <clears throat> by the way, I picked all different sports for all mine because sports are awesome, and so are movies about them. But no boxing, because that's not really a sport. It's just two guys beating the shit out of each other, which I'm all for, but, I mean, come on. <laughs> There's no rules to that. Anyway, number three is uh, Bad News Bears 2, Breaking Training, where they're playing against uh, the Redneck Kids in the Houston Astrodome. And uh, the lovable racist kid, Tanner Boyle, even though he's kind of a redneck, he outwits the other rednecks because they're going to call off the game in the middle of the game because something else is happening. So, And the Bad News Bears are losing. But then Tanner Boyle, like, runs around and they can't catch him. And then the audience laughs. And then they make them finish the game. And then the Bad News Bears win. So it's like he went outside the system. All right, that's my number three. Breaking training. I'll just write all that down somehow. Internet. All right, good. What is your uh, What is your number? Did you, guys, did you guys see the breaking training, Tom? What's your favorite Bad News Bears part of the trilogy? The one with Billy Bob Thornton. <sighs> Where he, he plays near Santa Claus. <laughs> uh, all right. I think it's what is your number two favorite sporting event or gun duel in movie history? All right, my favorite gun duel or sporting event is uh, my number two is rage is from raging bull. And it's the, um, you never got me down Ray, uh, fight. And I, I totally missed an opportunity in that. I didn't put this in my best fights category that we did. So I'm going to do it here. Uh, because the, uh, the You Never Got Me Down Ray fight between Jake LaMotta and uh, Sugar Ray in Raging Bull is a fantastic competition. And it for all the people who are crowing about how great the fighter is, uh, watch two seconds of this, and then you can be done with the fighter. That, I don't... Some guy was saying the fighter... One of those critics was saying it was better than Raging Bull. Is that guy <laughs> insane? Yes, he's insane, and and the people who are talking about how great the the fight um, footage is, I don't know, I don't know what the heck they're talking about, because the 
the fighting stuff in The Fighter was the most boring of that movie. The best stuff of that movie is the family stuff. The fighting stuff is gen- utterly generic. So it's David Russell trying to do The Wrestler but not change the title. It's like, well, you it's know, see, I can do a straight movie like Aronofsky. Kind of, but it misses all the color. Right. Hmm. Now he'll make the, a ballet. The, the Fighter is a better movie than you think it's going to be, but the but the fighting in it, I don't see why people are saying it's the best sports movie of the last decade. Uh, you 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 have to watch Raging Bull to really get it. And so this this fight from the Raging Bull from Raging Bull is my, is my okay. favorite, my second favorite sports competition of film history. So my number two, I've got to confess, I've never seen this movie. However. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been told about this movie. So I love this 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 the sporting competition in this movie. It's a Super Bowl and it's a Super Bowl that gets nuked by terrorists. In no. in in the sum of all fears, uh there's apparently a Super Bowl going on in no. Denver and terrorists sneak in and blow up a, a nuclear explosion. So Wait, this, I thought it was Baltimore. The Super Bowl getting nuked in some of all fears is my favorite, second favorite sporting event ever. Dingus, you're our resident Tom Clancy fan. Do I have it right? Is it close? You have it absolutely right. And Ben Affleck is there. I think he's played by Jack Ryan. (laughs) Uh, What about the Super Bowl getting shot with darts in uh, Black Sunday? You don't like that, Tom? Well, it doesn't. They foil. They foil the the plot in Black Sunday. That's the problem. Oh, I see. The, the football game. I don't know if it's the Super Bowl. Whatever game it is, it actually goes on. The blimp doesn't do whatever they're trying to do with it. So, so that's boring. You know, if I yeah. was to go to a Super Bowl, I'd or to watch one, I wouldn't go. I would like to see it get nuked. That would be cool. That would be much more fun than right. having to watch football. That's true. I totally watched that. I agree with you. So there you go. That's it would, be the, it would actually be the highest-rated Super Bowl ever. That's <laughs> true. And the ads for the nuclear Super Bowl, there's so many awesome ways you could do it. Yep. Letterman and Oprah. I guess that's my number two. Kelly, Wan, what's your number two uh, sporting event in, or gun duel in film history? All right. Um, I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid, so I might be misremembering it a little. But I think in that uh, Disney movie, Gus with the mule who um, learns how to play soccer and football, because they're pretty much the same thing. Let's get real. Uh, I think at the end, uh, for the last point, it's like there's three seconds left on the clock, and there's an evil real estate developer named Tim Conway. I forget the actor's name. Guess, like, kicks his head off and through the goalposts, and they win. Uh Maybe I'm thinking of No Mobile, but that's my number two. All right. right. Kingus, have you seen that movie? Gus. I'm going to say no. I don't think I have either. Is Kurt Uh, Russell in it? No, nobody's in it, except Gus. Mm -hmm. He's in it. And also the sequel for The Love of Gus and Gus the Hunted, Gus in Outer Space. I don't believe those last two. Gus and the Dinosaurs. I don't believe that one either. <laughs> Gus solves Christmas, the Christmas murders. <laughs> All right, I made up the first one. There's no actual. <laughs> All right, Dingus, what is your number one sporting event in film history? All right, my number one is very much in the tradition of Kelly Wan's gun duels are also allowed 
Oh, you! I can't believe you're falling for this, Dingus. Oh, uh-huh, you guys can't do gun rolls. I'm definitely falling for this. All right, I'm going to give you guys a quote. How about that? Awesome. Let's settle this war in the old manner. Your best fighter against my best. Uh, uh, uh the uh, Dune. Nope. That didn't have guns. It had voice lasers. <laughs> totally different. Uh. Your best fighter against mine. Oh, you know what? Is it beyond Thunderdome? Nope. Oh, rats. I give there up. Is, there is some sand involved, though. Hmm. Piranha. Also sandals. Sand and sandals. But it's not Gladiator, because I didn't... I don't it's think. not Gladiator, and it's not guns, but there are swords involved. So I went with a sword duel. Swords or lightsabers? 2001. <laughs> I give the up. Duelists. Uh, it's uh, the, it's the, it's the, uh, Someone said, were they in the armor? No. It's the Thessaly battle in Troy, at the beginning of Troy. <laughs> I hate you. See, what you did it, Kelly Wand. You gotta take control of your, your three by three, Kelly Wand. I like that he said, <laughs> he opens like with, okay, since he allowed gun duels, it's Troy. <laughs> yeah. All those gun duels in Troy. Okay, whatever. <laughs> So my favorite sports competition is Brad Pitt as Achilles going up against this huge dude and just jumping on him and stabbing him in the back. And uh, I love that sports competition. Because I was thinking of, of different weird sports that end quickly competitions and the Troy moment where Brad Pitt jumps up and just, and we're done. Uh, I just loved that. I love that. Is uh, Kelly Wand, you going to accept that? No. <laughs> I can give you a shorter answer if you want. <laughs> All right, are you, are you ready for my number one then? Because this Is one. Indiana Jones fighting the swordsman with his gun, a sporting competition. Yep. In your people's opinions. <laughs> well, Is it in yours? You're the one who came up with this. No, it's fine. All right, here's, here's a quote from my number one. You guys ready for this? Hmm. Relax, Greg, it's soccer. Oh, uh, ladybugs. So this is, uh, again, reflecting my absolute uninterest in sports. The scene in Superbad, when Jonah Hill comes up with the plan to buy alcohol so they can get Becky and Jules drunk at the party and maybe get laid, takes place entirely on the field while uh, while there while there's a soccer game going on and Michael Sarah is in the soccer game and Jonah Hill comes running out to talk to him with this plan and it's where they hatch the plan and while during the dialogue every now and then a few soccer players run back and forth past them uh, and it's where he has it's where Jonah Hill has his speech about you know the time when the chicks say oh I got so drunk last night I can't believe I fucked that guy we could be that guy you know all that takes place in the middle of a soccer field while the game's going back and forth and at one point a sort of a jockey looking dude runs by and says to Michael Sarah come on man we're two points behind and Michael Sarah's response is relax Greg it's soccer <laughs> oh man you're making me wish I'd picked made <laughs> And the very, right. the very, the ending of the scene, by the way, is Jonah Hill running off the field, and the ball rolls by him, and he just reaches out and kicks it, and it just goes way off angle off into the stands, <laughs> and you hear someone like a coach yelling, "You're getting that!" And then as he goes off screen, you hear him saying, "Once he's off screen, no, I'm not," <laughs> and he runs off. 
So that's my number one sporting event is the soccer match in Superbad. I'm writing all this down since I have to write it down on the Internet. Just write soccer match. That's a new rule I was informed of at the last just second. Ri- just write soccer match in Superbad. That's all you No, know. no. I'm going to write what I just heard and the patches of words I just caught. All right, Kelly, what is your number one sporting event in movie history? Uh, it's kind of similar to one of yours or all of yours in that it's a sports event that doesn't really have any ending, but it's uh, my personal favorite action movie ever, uh, Sudden Death with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I think <laughs> Peter Himes directed it. It's a hockey uh, Stanley Cup Finals uh, with terrorists and Chicago Blackhawks versus Pittsburgh Penguins. Tom, who would you root for there? The penguins. Spread would be? Totally the Penguins. Uh, by, by choice. Really? You mean the Penguins that year with Robitaille or now with Sidney Crosby? I think Robitaille is underestimated. He doesn't get enough credit. Huh. Interesting. Um, who, who's your favorite hockey player cameo in that movie? Uh, Roger Staubach, easily. <laughs> anyway, so the movie's so retarded that um, the game... Okay, there's terrorists that are killing or drop, putting bombs everywhere, and Jean-Claude Van Damme's the Bruce Willis character, and he has to figure it out, and the game's going on at the same time. And it's so boring that, like, each team just scores one goal each on each other, and the other team scores a goal, so it's like 1-1, 2-2, 3-3, one, one, two, two, three, three, which I think is, like, the filmmaker's way of, like, not showing favorites to either... We don't want to alienate Pittsburgh audiences for this movie. So uh, at one point, Jean-Claude Van Damme, somehow, he has to, like... One of the goalies is a terrorist, so he he kills him, and he gets into the goalie outfit, and he goes out onto the ice, and he has to, like, save a, a shot by one of the shooters, and no one on either team recognizes him, and no one in the stands recognizes him on the Jumbotron, but his son watching on TV knows it's him. He just goes, oh, it's Dad in goal, because that big thing on his temple, that big tumor thing. Von Dom's head. And then there's a helicopter, and you don't find out who won. So it's kind of like Black Sunday, Tom's number two. Sounds very existential. Did you see it? <laughs> no. You know who else is a terrorist? The mascot. And he, uh, it's like a, a butch woman, and he puts her head in the fan. Did you see that part? I did see that. Everybody, I mean, you know, from best of clips, I've seen that several times, of course. That's my number one best sporting event in movie history. Oh, also the other goalies, uh, Jason Voorhees. Now, uh, I have no runners-up because I really had to work hard to come up with these three, uh, but I'm sure you guys did. What are your runners-up for best sporting events in movie history? Mine is uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. What was the sporting event in that? The bat ball thing. Bat ball thing? I should see that. Where, where <laughs> you should see that. Where he has to learn all the all the arcane rules. Oh, that's me. right. Uh, that is, yeah. Good call. Is Yogi Bear getting picnic baskets a sport? <laughs> and tricking Ranger Smith? Because he's using sporting equipment sometimes. And he's water skiing. Is that one of your runners-up, Kelly Wand? No, I'm just curious. Just make a conversation. <laughs> Seemed like we've only gone two and a half hours so far. I thought I just, you know. Uh, one of my favorite, this isn't really a sports competition, but one of my favorite sports moments is in Hoosiers when um, when they measure the, uh, when Gene Hackman measures the 
the height of the basket as a way of, of teaching his guys that this, this arena is just like any other gym that we're going to play in. The, the height of the basket, the length of the court is exactly the same as anything else. That made as much sense to me as uh, Kelly Wan's description of the hockey game in Sudden Death. Hey, uh, also, I really liked the last competition in the movie Friday Night Lights, although I haven't seen the, the, the show. Um, I like the way that plays out. Do um, Ben Stiller and the other guy, the drug dealer, jumping on the window in Permanent Midnight, does that count as a sport? That made as you much sense as Dingus's thing about Hoosiers. <laughs> it's your category, Kelly, so you yeah. tell us. All right, so Dingus, what is our 3x3 three three for next week? All right, for next week, uh, this film is very much informed by the last few films I saw this week. And I saw a lot of great movies at the end of this week. And a lot of them had fantastic scenes that took place over a meal. So these are your, your three favorite uh, scenes that take mm. place in a meal, during a meal. Um, so that's good. Good. I don't good. think to, I don't need to take anything off the table. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't get it. All right, good. So join us next week for three by three of uh, scenes. How would you put it? Things that take place over a meal. Yeah, I think so. You're, okay. you're, you're, or you could say if you want to make it easier, three favorite meal scenes. Good, but yeah. All right. Tell, tell the people who aren't listening what movie we're also seeing next week. We will be seeing Season of the Witch, which is not Wait. just a fantastic... Three, uh, one? Yes, and not just a fantastic song by Cream, but also a movie with uh, Nicolas Cage. Uh, I don't... Do we have any predictions? Is it going to be terrible? So here's the thing. If January's coming up. We're going to have to be seeing a lot of terrible movies, I'm thinking. Uh, Why do you say that? What that's, did we see last January? That's how Januarys work, and I think Season of the Witch is just going to kick it off. So, isn't it a remake you know, of the Silver Shamrock, John Carpenter thing? We'll find out. We'll find I out. want to consider saying a couple of uh, of, uh, of our list films that I haven't seen. <laughs> I really want to see Buried and talk about it, and there was another Kelly Wands that I want to see and talk about. Mm, you know, maybe we should great. just yeah, maybe we should just ditch like Green Hornet uh, and some of these things and just sub in. As a service to our listeners, good movies. We could do. Now we're already for locked the whole in. Year? We're already for January. We're already locked in for Season of the Witch. We have our tickets. Yeah. We have our seats yeah. at the ArcLight. We do. Made our dinner plans, uh, mm. but maybe after then we'll, we'll try to we'll try to steer some of you people towards better movies. Uh, but for for next week, Season of the Witch. Join us for that, as well as Dingus's three by three of uh, meal scenes. So I am I'm Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Murkowski. Uh, very good. Uh, not Lisa, but Christian Murkowski. And Kelly Wand. The baseball game in Zapped has some clever twists, but didn't make my top three.
This podcast bears no resemblance to people living or dead and is based on Tom's math by Sapphire.